Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. On this episode, I have a chat with Ryan Tyndall. I met Ryan through LinkedIn uh, originally when I was doing research uh, as I was transitioning from uh, policing into the close protection industry. Uh, Ryan and his business partner, Josh Reeves, uh, are the directors of Empire Protection, which is a veteran-owned and run business specializing in close protection risk management. Uh, and other security services based in Australia, uh, but with a global reach. Ryan's professional background is from the military, specifically his 13 years of service in the 2nd Commando Regiment, uh, which is one of the world's most highly respected special operations units. Um, During this time, he was involved in some of the most hellish gunfights in the GWAT era. Uh, I think you only have to look so far as uh, the battle honors and commendations Uh, given out uh, or awarded to the uh, operators at two commando to understand uh, just how significant their impact was in the in the global war on terror Uh, since leaving the military ryan pursued other interests from carpentry to one of his passions as an emergency service volunteer uh, through the new south wales surf lifesavers during this transition ryan met josh uh, and the two have set themselves up as being one of the most professional and successful Uh, security firms with Empire Protection, uh, working across various industries in Australia. Um, From executive protection with the UFC, uh, security consulting for major telecommunications providers, and now venturing into cybersecurity as well. Uh, I think one of the most remarkable things for me to see uh, was the way that they've managed to uh, not only navigate or adapt, but really thrive their business during the pandemic. Um, one of which is uh, setting up Empire Institute, which is effectively their training arm of the company. Uh, They offer courses uh, to the public, such as um, the Hostile Environment Awareness Training Course, um, their Bomb Awareness Course, uh, Security Refresher Courses, uh, and have partnered up with uh, uh, folks like Michael Julian uh, from the U.S. uh, with the Alive Active Shooter Survival Program, Anyways, with, without waffling on too much, uh, in this episode we discuss everything from driving around Afghanistan in sort of Mad Max-style uh, Land Rovers and getting into gunfights, um, the security industry, surf lifesavers, and everything in between. I think my biggest takeaway from our chat and something that I have picked up uh, from getting to know Ryan is to not be selfish with your time and your lessons learned in life. Um, you know, he, he said it to me uh, before as well. It's it, you know, it's sort of it may not make any difference to you, but a simple chat could potentially be life altering to someone else. Um, anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, also I just want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. Um, be safe, look after yourselves and your loved ones. Um, and I'll see you or, um, yeah, well, I'll be back in the new year. All right. All the best. All right, Ryan, thank you uh, for being on the podcast, mate. Um, We've never actually officially met like in person. Uh, I think COVID was the, was the main culprit for that. 
Um, I trying to think of how I found you guys out. I think it was, so I want to say it was originally LinkedIn, but I think it went a bit before that. We've, we've got a mutual um, or had a mutual friend in Elliot uh, who, who uh, runs uh, or works for the UFC in their security security team uh, through social yeah. media. I, I followed him and then he posted a photo of, uh, of a gig that you guys did in, in Australia. Then I sort of went through the tag list, uh, saw you and, and, and remembered your name from popping up in LinkedIn. Um so, so you could say that I'm maybe a, your stalker, really. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so yes, I've, I've had worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so we spoke on LinkedIn and, um, you know, I was sort of giving you my story about transitioning from the police and then moving to Scotland. Um, and you guys, uh, you and Josh have just been absolutely fantastic at uh, any questions that I really had. Anytime I, I wanted a chat or a quick WhatsApp, um, you guys have been on the other end of that. So I thank you very much and thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's always happy to help out an ex-police or military guy where I can. Uh, you know, for me, it's nothing. It's just a conversation, but, you know, really could could change someone's path or direction and it could be bigger in their life. So why not? Absolutely. Why not help out where you can? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we were just discussing before the, the format. So if we just start from from the beginning, really, like your, your, uh, your beginning, your origin story. Um, where were you, you know, brought up, born? Um, what was happening at the time uh, around the world or in Australia? Um, so I was I'm a 1984 model. Um, grew up in Sydney, Australia. Pretty, my parents owned a news agency, like a little corner shop. Uh, but uh, as I was growing up, like very middle class family, went to you know my parents saved up to send me to private school. Um, but one person in in my family is, has always had something to do with the military. My dad was air dispatch uh, for a few years as a reservist. Uh, I grew up with the stories of my uh, grandfathers and, and that going to World War Two and that sort of stuff. And I just nice. I've just always was obsessed with the military. Um, finished high school and one of my friends has already uh, joined the military. I decided to um, yeah, sign up and and join, and then I actually didn't have my car, uh, my driver's license uh, at the time, and uh, my my best friend uh, he drove me over to, to recruiting and was doing the paperwork, and um, I was signing up for a reserve commando. Uh, they had this new new scheme to to do all your courses back to back. So, because it was taking such a long time to get someone fully qualified, and they came up with this new thing. It was called Simpson Platoon, as the pilot program, which was then turned into the direct entry scheme uh, that you see through most of the special forces uh, communities uh, around the world. Um, yeah, my best friend was like, "Well, I'm here too." Two of my friends were in the military, so he signed up as well. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, that's 2000. And- Three, uh, off to basic training at uh, Kapuka in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, bounced through all the courses, uh, got onto commando selection. Um, and that selection is a joint with the full time regiment, uh, which is second, uh, what is now second commando regiment, and the one time, uh, the reserve regiment, one commando regiment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, joint selection. And they asked who wanted. They were raising more companies and they asked who wanted to go full-time. I hadn't even passed. And I was like, yeah, loving this. <laughs> Let's do it. Actually, actually, I think there was a PT session that I wanted to get out of. They said, 
went for two hours <laughs> going and signed the paperwork. I think that was the real reason at the time. I was like, yeah, I need a break. So uh, signed up full time. Um, and back then, if you didn't get selected, that was it. You were in the army for four years regardless. So right, yeah. um, luck out passed. Uh, <laughs> nice. So that, yeah, yeah. What I find interesting um, as well is like, so Australia is like, you know, effectively been in like every major conflict uh, around the world, you know, with, with the other allied nations and stuff. Um, but in terms of like the, uh, I guess, uh, like pop culture and stuff, you, you know, in, in America, you get all these movies churned out with, um, you know, with, with the, the military, whether it's Navy SEALs, Green Berets or whatever it may be. You don't you don't have so much of that in Australia, um, but like you were saying, you came from a, that military family. Were there any any other influences, um, sort of around your community or like in, in pop culture that you can think of uh, around that time? You know, I was eighties, young kid in the nineties. All, yep. all the army movies, Rambo. Yes, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> all those. Yeah, you just grew up. Everyone, everyone, my generation grew up with all those uh, um, movies, and yeah. it just it was almost an almost slight obsession. I yeah. just, I used to read, like I said, we had a, a news agency and I um, I used to read the defense magazines and about nice. all the new capabilities and that were coming out. And I just, and my two friends that ended up joining the army with me, they, there was a whole group that did like uh, cadets. So like, um, like people from the world, it's like uh, army for young people at school. Yeah. You're trying to do it. Our school didn't do it, but they did it in like a private cadet. Yeah, Army Cadet Corps. Um, I never actually did it, but I they I grew up with their stories as well. Like they used to have time out and they're doing their camps and everything like that, shooting guns and. Nice. Um, did yeah, you uh, almost... did you play any sports or anything like that? Uh, any like sort of other team basics um, activities when when you were a kid? Yeah, so I, I played uh, rugby league, yeah. touch football. I was did surf life saving um, as a, as a, a junior nipper. Which, yeah. In my later life now, I'm um, I'm a duty officer, a volunteer duty officer for them, which is an emergency service here in Australia. Yeah. Um. So I spend a lot of volunteering time. So I've almost come full circle and back to that. Yeah. Nice. Um. Swimming, running. I used to run a lot. I, I just I like being active. I was never a. Um. I actually grew up. I I, I couldn't read or write very well uh, when I was younger. Uh, yeah. Um. Like most people in the army had. ADD, um, but I learned to overcome my weaknesses and, and I I trained on them and, you know, technology has helped a lot with that. Um, but, yeah, I was never a book. Although I liked knowledge, I was never a bookworm that you used to go out and read stuff. I'd rather, much rather sitting down and listen to someone yeah. give a lecture and that sort of stuff. More of an, like, an audible, audible kind of guy? Yeah, yeah, it's much audible, yeah. which is amazing in this yeah. day and age with the technology that we have. Oh, and that's what like, like this podcast as well. Like I, I just, I love just on the go. You can still do other things, have a podcast going or an audible book going in the background um, or, you know, while you're yeah. driving to work, whatever it may be. So it's, it's definitely. Um, and, and exercise. I don't listen to music anymore. It's all like, yeah. cause I, I feel that's a, a waste of time. Yeah. Um, I'm like, if I'm exercising, it's I'm listening to like an audio book yeah. or I'm listening to a podcast um i'm just like my thirst for knowledge as i'm getting older is like exponential yeah it, it's um, and like that access to like information now is just unreal but you know you, you yeah know, do, listen to 
you know, things like while you're working out, working out that brain muscle while you're working out the other muscles, why not? Um, what was the know, it's like as you're going through something hard, like having something to focus on, yeah, to like get you through that, you know, it's yeah. like a combination. Can I still remember that information as I'm physically yeah. exerting myself? You know, it's that you're confirming you know the knowledge exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I would imagine, like, during your you know, a lot of the stories you hear about selection, they do a obviously the stress test where they get you to memorize something earlier on in the phase, and then when you're smoked out or burnt out. At the end, they ask you questions about it, and you know the, the guy. Yeah, that can... recall, that recall yeah. of the information. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty common technique across most elections. What was the the, the drive um, to go sort of straight to SF? Um, was it just was it because your mates were doing that sort of feeder program as well, uh, and you guys all kind of decided together, or um, uh, like no, instead so of just big army? The, no, the first guy he he got out and joined. His dad will learn, join the infantry, so he joined uh, Signals Corps. Okay, yeah. Um, and he ended up attached to um, the Signals Regiment or squadron that was attached to what is now uh, to Commando. Um, and I don't exactly know how I ended up there, but I think that my local regiment was the university regiment. So I, I went there and then the guy's like, well, this is mainly for officers. You don't want to be an officer. Right. Um, he goes, oh, the next one is like the commando regiment and they do a lot of cool stuff. So I, I went up there and, <laughs> yep. um, you know, back then it wasn't, you know, this this is early 2000s. The, the, the culture of SF that grew through the Afghanistan or the Middle East wars yeah. uh, wasn't really big. 20 years ago, like it is now, um, a lot of their success has come from that time frame. Although Special Forces obviously played a pivotal part in uh, in 2001 in in, in invasion, it wasn't, people didn't really know about it back then as they they have a keen insight now, it wasn't in the forefront of people's mind. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they had, I literally went in to have this conversation. She's like, well, we're doing this scheme, um, direct entry scheme. You know, they're doing it around the world. This is going to be the pilot program. Yeah. Um, I actually don't even think there's a proper record of it because the direct entry scheme, like one, um, I wasn't on. I was the one on before that, which was called Simpson Platoon. So, like, right. I was the zero. And then I wasn't <laughs> even on the first one. Uh, but it was huge, hugely successful. Yeah. And, you know, it, for people that don't know, it is um, when you get someone straight off the street, it was you know, has an education behind them um, other than just coming from the conventional path through, like, the infantry. Yeah. One, they don't bring a lot of the bad habits. Two, they bring uh, extra knowledge. So, like, I had a guy that was a qualified accountant on it, um, other guys that worked for Department of Defence uh, as a public servant. Um, yeah. You know, like, we were all young. Like, I was, I was one of the youngest. I was, I was only... Um, 19th birthday when I went to Kapuka, like two days before I went to Kapuka, basic training. So, but you just got this mix of people. And then when they, when you finally got into the regiment and they mixed you with people from the regular army and it's an accelerated uh, pathway. So they, you're doing all the courses one after another and they've got really good instructors. um, So they're just, you know, belt feeding you as much information as you can, opposed to taking two, three years, they condense it down and, six months before you get onto your selection okay. and then your selection goes for that 12 to 18 months yeah, over right. time. So it's like a good two years of, of, of my army career was just all the courses that you can think of. Yeah. And like parachute, boats, 
weapons, heavy weapons, mortars, like we were just doing everything, demolitions. Yeah. Um, and for, I, I guess for the other listeners that are not from Australia and don't understand um, our, the difference between the regiments here in Australia, like we have the Australian SASR. Yeah. Um, and then we have one commando and uh, two commando. One commando is the reserve uh, regiment, uh, and they have two companies. And then uh, you have two commando, which is a full-time uh, regiment, and it has four commando companies. Yep. And they, they're our three special forces uh, regiments yep. that we have. And I actually think that you'll, you'll soon see the one commando might go full-time. Um, and not be a reserve regiment anymore. Uh, okay. Be yeah. full time to have the air. So that should probably come out in the next couple, couple of years, just because the amount of the army and the military and the government relies on special forces. Yeah. And then inside, there are three special forces regiments. Uh, and then we have special operate, and we sit under special operations. And then you have the engineers and the logistics support. We've got helicopters in direct support. Yeah. Um, and the, the two, well, we have a whole training uh, unit now, which includes the parachute training school and the special forces training center. Um, so it's it's become a big beast. Uh, we're we're only small. We're only I think we're only three and a half thousand strong, which you can compare it to like America. I think it's seventy five thousand. Yeah. So okay. we're very small. Um, so our units have to do a, a lot more than. Um, than like other units. So we're kind of a mix. People are always like, oh, so what are you like? And we're like, I'm not really like anything. If you think talk about like operational skill sets uh, that we do, like all the training is very similar across SAS and commandos. It's yeah. the application that's different. Sure, it's the yeah. way the government uses um, that force compared to us. They're more yeah. unconventional, uh, plainclothes deniability operations where we're, um, in uniform, uh, winning the tactical battle yeah. uh, that needs to be won um, yeah. for a strategic effect, where SAS are the their strategic effect, more surveillance and pushing into that to that grey role. Oh, I can't really speak much about what they do. Yeah, yeah. I never went over there. Um, but we do same skill sets as you know. We do stuff that the Green Berets do. We do stuff that uh, the Navy SEALs do. 75th Ranger Regiment, we do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, some stuff that the Air Force uh, guys do with our JTAPs and that. So we're, we're, we we have to be asked to do a lot of things just because we're a small manned army. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's just like, hey, you guys are doing that because we've got no one else. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to be prepared. And yeah, most units in America might only have two or three skill sets. But yeah, we've, we've nearly got 20, like, mission serials that we have to cover from like our unit is responsible for domestic counterterrorism. I was going to say, uh, which is yeah. So it's something that um, I think a lot of people might, especially like in the States might not understand as well is that this Australian special operations command also does uh, internal counterterrorism, which in the States isn't really a thing, um, you know, unless it, it gets through a certain threshold. Um, but you yeah. guys are very much involved with the, you know, local law enforcement and, um, the uh, AFP, which is the federal police, to do um, internal counterterrorism. I think it's called, is it tag east and west? Is it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, it's, there's two tags, you got east and west. And um, 
East Coast and West Coast. Yeah. Uh, the East Coast won the tag. It's domestic counterterrorism, yeah. including all the – in our economic zone, so that's 200 nautical miles yeah. um, off, off the coast. So you've got ship underway, uh, ship at anchor, uh, yeah. you know, the oil rigs that go 200 nautical miles off the coast. Yeah. Just a long flight ride out to them. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Tag West does that hostage recovery o- offshore – Sure. Uh, for the government that's the that's the you know it's the same yeah skills that you learn but they're applying them in in different environments and it's not to say that one unit's better than the other like it's D- different, they different just apply sets. it in a different way yeah um and so you know like we do this the equivalent of what hrt like fbi um or you know in some circumstances Task Force Blue, Self Team Six, whatever you want to call them, K, Special War Group, like limited yeah. that we we only would hang out with them when we're doing that mission set. Yeah, and then we come back and then, but we do unconventional warfare like normal green grades. Yeah, um, you know, like so, FID, foreign uh, internal defense, uh, yeah. unconventional warfare, irregular warfare. Um, we do all, all that, and that's what we're really good at in the in the you know, coin. We do a lot of coin counterinsurgency. Yeah. over the last couple of years and direct actions which has been a main focus of a lot of people's training in the last 15 20 years yeah. um which i think it's shifting now um towards uh indo-pacific and we're shifting back to that irregular warfare space exactly, much yeah. much more yeah i think the sort of the, the big army uh, there's obviously still a need for it but um like you said that that intel space uh the more um uh specific action you know uh, mission sets that that's that's where we're heading towards um in, in terms of so you you joined up in in 03 um i know oh, like sorry, yeah. you go like sort of the f- yeah, five six seven were like some of the most brutal sort of years up tempo wise um yeah. uh, a lot of violence a lot of deaths that, that sort of thing so so you sort of came in at that pivotal moment um what what was it like for you like yeah in terms of up tempo and and also just to go back on the um, internal counterterrorism side of things, you like the correct me if I'm wrong. The deployment sort of cycle will be like you'd be forward deployed, like the you know Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever it may be. Uh, and then when you're home, you're doing the internal uh, CT stuff. Is that is that how it works? Um, so back in the day, it was a trickle uh, system. So one of the companies was responsible for the counterterrorism, and you'd. Um, just rotate and as an individual would rotate up there and so okay. you change companies and you'd probably stay out there two, three years and then come back down. Yeah. Um, when I got in, I actually did, we, we did basic CQB. We didn't have advanced CQB. It okay. was only later on uh, the, that we got that. Um, and then once everyone in the unit had that, uh, that skill set, they, they saw a shift and the companies would rotate. So I, I actually did nine years before um, I rotated up onto team in 2011. So I had already knocked up like four or five deployments by that that, that stage. I I got in, I did my couple of years, I did all the exercises, I was very junior. Um, our company was just raised. So uh, when we got there, and the guys that I did selection with, they were, that was the platoon I was in and they gave us new, NCOs. Oh, okay. um, so that's how, how they raised us. And um, yeah, so when 
rotation one for special operations task group, SOTG, uh, kicked off. There's actually a company, mine, uh, sorry, a platoon minus that went. Um, and so I actually got <laughs> left off the all bat because I wasn't liked, liked by the OC. Uh, my sorry, my platoon commander at the time, and so I stayed behind and then um, continued training, doing courses and that sort of stuff. And then it was uh, rotation three came along, um, so I didn't go on rotation two. Uh, all the guys that were that got left behind, they made it on that one. I still was like, Fuck, I must be the bad guy. No one likes me. Piss somebody um, off. I, <laughs> I'm very abrasive. I can, I'm very abrasive. People don't like me. Think I'm a bit of a smart ass. Um, my younger self. But uh, Op Perth happened in, in on rotation three with Delta Company, um, and two guys. And it was a major, major operation. Um, and that was one of the reasons why the task force uh, got awarded the unit citation for gallantry. Uh, so instead of issuing it to bravery medals to individuals. It was just too much went on. So yeah. so the whole whole three task force for those three rotations, rotation one, two, and three, actually got awarded that unit citation for gallantry. Yeah. Um, but the main catalyst for that was this massive operation called Op Perth uh, where a few dudes got injured and a star of gallantry was awarded for the first time and that's one under our Victoria Cross, yeah. um, our second highest uh gallantry uh ward um and i think three or four uh bravery medals got awarded and, and a few citations it was, yeah. anyway a guy got injured two guys actually got injured um uh they crashed their unarmored vehicle when they were driving down a road uh and got opened up by a machine gun and crashed into the side of the room yeah dismounted attacked that mach- uh machine gun pit jumped back in the in the car drove down the road a bit more and there was another machine gun pit that hit him and this guy had crashed his car three times, the driver and his back was his back was stuff. So they um they needed a replacement and I requ- I had the same skill sets that, that that guy had. Yeah. because uh, I'd gone in my time away and did all these courses and they're like, well get on the plane, go. you yeah. you've got the passport, you've got all the qualifications. We need two people and they and they and they sent us away. So um that was a quick tour for me. Um, six or seven weeks, you know. But that was like I got there. It was like day after I got there. It was like pack your shit. We're driving out tomorrow. We've been waiting for you to arrive because like four or five day journey to get over there. Um, and drove out and didn't come back. Yeah, very much. Come back to refuel, re-equip, and then and drive back out again. But it was a different operation back then. They just didn't know. They didn't have the intel. It wasn't intel-driven missions. It was you drive out, you drive north, you find what's out there, and you drive your own operations from the intelligence that you gather on the ground, which is different to what it was back in 2014 when it was my fifth special operations task force. Um, You know, so I learned a lot on that, and then... um, the government actually withdrew and there was only going to be those three rotations. And then they pulled in the conventional army. Uh, so we only had a couple hundred people there and uh, we handed over the conventional army, you know, a couple of thousand. And within 12 months, they couldn't drive out the door because they were getting blown up so much. Yeah. Like their vehicles just kept getting hit. IED, 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 IED. 
and it just got it, it got untenable for, for for government. They they weren't uh, achieving their mission. So um, you know, SOCOM pushed and said, "Well, we can fix this problem and do um, you know go go in and uh, and kill all the the, the bomb makers and the, and the key leadership yeah. and really disrupt uh, the headquarters and those key knowledge centers of, of the enemy um, to allow freedom of movement for conventional forces so they could get out and do that reconstruction task force, which is what they were there for. Um, so that that fourth rotation when we went back, that was, we've done some more training for another tour and it was, it was a company this time. So they increased the whole task force across the board. Yeah. Uh, so they had a, had a squadron of, a squadron of SAS and a, and a company of commanders, which, you get a company together of commandos and it's, you, with all the attachments, your medics and uh, and you see, well, it's like 150 guys that, you know, it has the, you're driving out and you've got like three or four guns on each car. Um, and back then we're driving like our SRVs, which is just like a 110 Land Rover, like yeah. <laughs> with just roll cages and it. Soft, and, soft and skins it. as well? No, like no, no skin. It was just, it was yeah, just yeah, a roll yeah. cage Jeez. and we were just like, <laughs> They gave it to us and we're like welding stuff onto it, like welding oh, brackets onto it and that sort of stuff. And nice. uh, I think this liner fits here. And we're like developing the, you were sitting in the gunner's mount, you were developing that and like sending the information back so that they, the next vehicle that they built to send over, like had these upgrades and that yeah. sort of stuff. So, yeah, well, you know, you had to, it was like, it was like the Bush Army. It was like, <laughs> and there's a lot, not a lot of resources over there at, at, at the time. It's not like the beast. You know, this is only two, three years into the campaign. Yeah. Um, I was say, really it probably just... looked uh, more like a Mad Max sort of situation than, than anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, we did some good stuff. Like the, um, the CEO that we had for that company, he, he was there, um, you know, to change things. And he is one of the smartest people I know. And he, he, I won't say his name because he's still in the military now, uh, but he's pretty high up. He's, he's a one or two star general now, like yeah. like really designing the way the army's going to drive them for the next 20 years. Um, and he was out there and was like, let's do a direct action, like one or two a night yeah. for every, every night for like 20 nights. That was the, that was the, the, the plan scheme and maneuver. And like we we're generating intelligence back from the base and also uh, locally to drive the targets that we're hitting and yeah. and just really going into a valley that was really causing the Australian forces problems and just really disrupting um, the enemy's actions. So it gave us freedom of movement. Uh, and when, you know, once you have freedom of movement, you can go out and you can do, I and mean, you can engage with the communities yeah. um, and you can rebuild, which, you know, wins the hearts and minds and then you, you have a presence there, but, if you can't drive around or can't move, you can't achieve that mission. So exactly, yeah. So we were like, and that was that was like, you'd drive out for thirty days and you wouldn't come back for. Th- <laughs> so you were gone a, a long time out in the desert, just driving around, finding targets, <laughs> going to different villages. Like some of the terrain that these cars were going over, like it's like, I don't know how I didn't roll it. <laughs> uh, I, I gave it a pretty good go. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was really, and then as, so that was my, my second rotation. And then, you know, we we're working, we we're based with the Dutch back then in a yeah. small base, you know, it was, the airfield wasn't even sealed. That was still a dirt airfield that we're landing uh, planes on. And then 
the Dutch kind of pulled out and moved off and the Americans came in. Um, I think so. That was two, 2007 was my first one. 2008 was my second one. Had 2009 off where I had a bit of a holiday, got 12 months off then and then came back 2010 and it was the Americans had moved in. We had a lot more assets, so a lot more helicopters were in theatre and they were the main uh, partnering force. Yeah. Uh, on our base, so because the Dutch had pulled out, so we had, uh, we had joint facility with them. Um, with more helicopters, it changes the environments. We couldn't drive around as much as we used to because we're getting blown up, and we we transitioned into the like the Bushmaster, yeah. uh, which is our light armored vehicle that uh, we use. Which man, they're only designed to stop like two hundred grams worth of explosives, and they were hitting the IEDs that were like five, six, 10, 15 kilos. And not and I don't think I think it actually hit one that was like 200 kilos and it still didn't bridge the hull. Oh wow. Okay. Um it's like the only armored vehicle. Everyone's like, wow, we need to buy them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we would have lost a lot more people, like people getting injured, you know, hurt backs and necks and being thrown around the cabin inside, but yeah. they were alive. Uh where like the light armored our SUVs that we're driving that were um, the 110s, the Land Rovers, you hear one of them, dudes lost legs. Yeah. Um, it's one of my mates lost both his legs uh, early on. But yeah, so. What was the, um, like, so just backtracking a bit, you know, as a 19 year old and then um, how old were you on that, on that first deployment? 20, 23, 23, 24 on my second one when I first, got into combat and what, what was the the mindset like so did, did you think um you know obviously you can't prepare for everything within selection like this you can only train so much and then you're out there um h- how did you find yourself in terms of your mental robustness um i actually i'm pretty ro- like robust mentally uh, my mum was a suicide counselor growing up um and i didn't think i learned a lot from her yeah but i did Okay, yeah. uh, just through osmosis and she used to get these calls on a on a mobile phone uh back then for like someone was gonna commit suicide. Yeah. Uh, I think it was the kids have line too. So she was speaking to a lot of kids and okay, well, phone yeah. ring in the middle of the night, we're watching TV and she'd be trying to talk this kid down. So um, you know, as a bit of a volunteering thing she did. Um that really prepared me massively uh, now being older and looking back on my time. Um because you're just training your mind constantly yeah. for like 20 years before a journey army. And then you, you learn again how to cope with more things. Yeah. So when, when I was put under pressure, you know, I'd bounce back and the mate ship, as you know, in Australia is um, we're known for it. And, yeah. and you, when you're in a close group community, small team, like it's those guys that get you through. Yeah. Uh, nothing day. quite like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was on uh, our rotation four was, I remember there was a, a repeater on the on the top of um, a mountain, the enemy uh, radio repeater station, and we got all this intelligence that was up there. We knew guys were up there with it, and then one day we just said, "No, let's just go up there and and destroy it." Yeah. Um, so we gone. It was a section a section up and, and between headquarters, so two teams, um, and we just start walk up this hill, and we had other teams in uh and what i was actually in mortars back then uh but because all the teams are 
exhausted from doing all these direct actions night after night, I left uh, the multitudes behind and jumped on as a number two scout um, for one of the teams um, just to replace one of the guys. And we walk up this hill and this hill was, it was steep. It was, I think it was about a hundred meters in elevation over, over spaces of about 50 meters. Like, so it was like, <laughs> yeah. dudes were like, in the end, were slinging their rifles to climb up rocks. Scale up uh, the walls. Like yeah. yeah, scale up the wall. But as we were approaching the, um, the base of the hill, uh, and we had two teams up with the platoon headquarters um, in depth. So we were advancing to contacts for the first time. So I was pretty nervous because uh, that was the first time I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to get shot at. Because coming over the radio, they're like, get the machine guns ready, shoot yeah. these guys. Um, and yeah, we got hit. Uh, so my team got hit uh, by two, well, the whole um, platoon minus got hit by two. Uh, machine guns in fortified defensive positions like from 100 meters elevation and i i got a stoppage um on my third round of uh shooting back and i looked over at my my oppo who was the lead scout uh because we kind of got hit on the flank uh to see if he saw me so he covered me and i looked over and he just copped a burst straight through him and uh he took one took one through the through the leg missed his uh femoral artery by about three centimeters and um, shattered his femur into a million pieces. Yeah, and so I watched him use his rifle as a walking stick until his femur just shattered. Oh. Um, he, he fell down, so I just like I just ran over, slung my cat, and, and started dragging him. And um, I remember looking up at this hill, and I could see the uh, the flash of the machine gun, and then just dirt just flick up around me like i mean in front beside and behind me as i was dragging this guy back then i was really small i was, I was uh on hard rations for months on end i, I think i got down to about 60 kilos yeah. um I, i'm a small frame guy normally i'm not that tall um and this guy was 120 like without any gear on so there i'm dragging him about like a foot a minute yeah. um and just just being totally and i was just like how am i not dead <laughs> but, uh, I looked around and he's like, he's screaming at me, leave me, leave me, I'm dead. Yeah. You go take cover. And I'm like, I'm like, shut up, Chad. I'm not leaving you. One of my best mates. Because he yeah. was in he was in my team as well. He was the number one on the Mortitude, I was the number two. So we right. left. Um and then luckily our mortar team had already laid on the top on the top of the ridge line and like the rest of the section was just pinned down. And the mortar team at, it opened up on the 50 cows on the top of the ridge line, and then and then I think they dumped about 12 rounds of 81 mil mortars <laughs> HE on, on top of this ridge line, which you know gave us enough time to um, for the rest of the guys that weren't in in combat, yeah, you know, like pinned down in the open to yeah. to move forward and get to that base because you know there was a you know a 30 meter 40 meter stretch of, of openness before you got to the base of the hill underneath that machine gun. Right. Um, and I got separated from my, um, as I was dragging him, my team commander came over at the time and he helped me drag him the rest of the way. And then he, he was exhausted by I was leaving. He went and then another dude from another day popped over and pulled him. We had to drag this guy like 30 meters um, to cover and then like treat him. And yeah. I was like on the radio, I was like, we've got a prior one casualty. Yeah. Um, send AME. Um, so the other platoon, the company headquarters, they were, you know, doing another mission, you know, 
a village over and they like they just stopped on their cars and just as fast as they could get over here to support us because we're in heavy contact. Um, uh, still to this day, that was one of the, I think it was the biggest firefight that I've, I've been in. I think that was the second day. I think the day before was one of the biggest battles we had and uh, where my team commander were, won a medal of gallantry. Um, and then the next day we had this, uh, this one. It was like for about five days, we were just in the, in the, in the thick of it. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, you know, that was the first dude shot in combat from in, in the Afghan war. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, um, from, from our unit. So, yeah. uh, you know, I remember when he came back as someone had done the, all the you know, veteran affairs, DVA, done all the paperwork for him. Cause it's like, no one's done this before. <laughs> so I'll, I'll do, he got it done for him. And now yeah. it's a total nightmare to do, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Remember, someone had done it for him because he was the first guy to actually get shot. Um, yeah. Pros, pros and cons of being the first. <laughs> yeah. But I remember I didn't uh, end up assaulting the hill. I got pushed into a – because my team got split up. Yeah. Three guys went up the hill and a couple of them stayed, treat this guy. Um, other teams came and they were already pushing up up the hill to assault. Uh, I, I got picked up by a, another car and we pushed into a overwatch position to provide – and I jumped on a – Meeting machine gun to provide uh, fire support uh, to the to the front of the advancing troops. So they were popping smoke. Hey, this is our our forward line, and I was just shooting to the right hand side of that smoke, yeah. just and just like keep going forward because it was like, you know, you go through all this training, and they're like, you're going to be assaulting the the bunker. It's going to be fortified, and you're like, yeah, this is all. Yeah. Like when you're doing the training, you're like, this is not how it happened. Yeah, and then. That I remember shooting, I'm like, this is exactly what they taught. <laughs> they did a really good job. Glad uh, I paid attention for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I, I remember being pretty sh- shaken up then. And uh, one of my best friends, he was the team commander of that vehicle that picked me up. And I was covered in this guy's blood yeah. from, from trading him. And I wasn't a medic, but I wasn't qualified as my backup skill wasn't a medic, I wasn't backup radio operator so i didn't even have i had very basic medical support back yeah. then uh medical training but yeah it was i remember being pretty shaken that day um but next day i was like woke up and they were going down in that valley and they were hitting again i was like pull my hand up i was like and they're like no nah, ryan you've used all your nine lives <laughs> so no yeah. i just and yeah you know what it's like is you just get addicted to that, that adrenaline, adrenaline rush yeah. um and it did help that he did, Chad didn't die. Um, and he um, pushed back um, for a medivac. The AME was, was in AR and they, they got him back and treated him and he, and he, and he survived. Yeah. So, and yeah. Um, so interesting time. And I, I kind <laughs> of, I've looked back on that a few times. I actually got an honorable mention in, um, in a book, in the book, No Front Lines. Okay. Uh, yep. For that, for that, so it was pretty interesting to nice read your <laughs> mission. Like even that was like two lines. It was like, yeah, that's oh, that's that's something for the grandkids. That's awesome. Um, we, yeah, we we're talking before um, about the um, the like treated battle battle wound uh, sort of injuries. Uh, sorry, battlefield injuries, um, and uh, so, sort of during your time, the advancement of that tac med sort of stuff. Um, you know, yeah. from, where, from where you were on that date to sort of maybe towards the end of your career, had that just sort of exponentially increased in terms of everyone was Ex- trained up on it and equipment and all that? Sort yeah, of stuff? So, 
you know, like I, I suppose I came to era like Australia really wasn't involved in wars before before then. Then they did Timor, but like nothing really happened there. And I remember when we joined, I had to sign a waiver for this satchel of stuff, and they're like, "This is like you pour it on the wound, and it will like cauterize the wound." Right. like a chemical reaction but when they were giving us the training they were like make sure the guy's unconscious because it's pretty it's a chemical burn so it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be hated on you i was like and they're like just <laughs> sign this waiver because we're not sure what it does yet because we've just been yeah. invented as you do in the army you're like yeah whatever yeah sign, sign up not like you gave me that many injections that I didn't even read the fine print, like yeah. whatever. But you gave me anthrax. Um, so, what? Why did you give me anthrax? Yeah, I had the anthrax. Yeah. Uh, obviously, everyone complaining about vaccines. I was like, yeah. oh, that yeah. fucking anthrax vaccine. That fucking hurt. Yeah. It's like, a, and the, I had the bubonic plague one. Like, there's no just, bubonic just plague, and they're like, there may be bubonic yeah. plague in Afghanistan. So we give that. And that's like a, it's like a twenty-four gauge needle so it's like massive yeah and it's like they're sticking a pencil in your arm and it's like oh what is that and obviously before you go overseas you need to be like fully vaccinated for everything everything yeah just in case they're like so i was like going in four days four injections next day come back four injections like one in each leg (laughs) one in each arm just like all right there's the 16 injection i've like 29 vaccine i don't even know what that's for Um, assaulted more before leaving for deployment than you were at deployment yeah yeah (laughs) So the, the medical stuff and just the, the battlefield trauma, um, like casually trauma for like tactical medicine, just really advanced. And, yeah. and it is a uh, shout out to Israel as a country. They really have produced some really good medical products. Yeah, And I, I, I know like necessity is the, the mother of all inventions. Like sure. you, <laughs> you don't invent this stuff until... Like we wouldn't have like some of the mainstream medical products that we have now if it wasn't for wars. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a, a company here in Australia called uh, TACMED Australia. TACMED, yeah. and, they're, and they're like good friends of mine because they were the medics. They, they were the medical core medics that they weren't, you know, uh, qualified yeah. uh, commandos, but they came on the missions with us in, in platoon headquarters. Like yeah. um, they, and they really designed... Medical training now and bringing that back to civilians is like how you should train and teach dudes because they had such success yeah. over the years. We we were sort of lost more people than we did. Like you know the um, the fully so soldiers that we lost overseas, we we probably should have lost more than that. But yeah. I don't know whether it was good luck or, or good training or good technology, we, but we just or, or good risk mitigation, we just didn't. Um, which we Australia was really really lucky. And my unit and, and the SAS, like, I don't think, and this is not really publicised, but I did spe- I did five special operations task force. That's that's a lot. Like, yeah. they're, like, six-month trips. Yeah. And, like, most people are probably only did two or three. Like, so I did five over my career because, like I said before, it was just a lucky time to, to yeah, join, to I in, guess. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to go back, so I was like... I was bouncing around just, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Just I'll get this skill set because I know they need that qualification and then yeah. I, I can get on the trip, you know, make yourself valuable. Um, but, yeah, it's like it, it, it's crazy. We took our unit of our task force was just 300 dudes um, and, the, and, the, and the Australian Army contingent 
was uh, 3,600 at its fullest capacity, I think. Right. So they're tenfold the size of us. Yeah. Doing reconstruction, they had infantry there. Our task force, first of all, task force 66, it accounted for over 90 to 95% of the combat missions for Australia. Yeah. So, you know, between, I think we account for, well, I know it's like 16 people, close friends or worked in our units or worked in our task force that would die of 42. So we took nearly 50% of the, of the KIA yeah. and we probably took well over 50, 60% of the uh, like wounded in action. Injured, yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah was, which was massive, like because we're doing 90, 90% of the combat. Yeah. Um, so they, the government really relied on us and we were, and I was junior when I, I did mostly, I wasn't a team commander to, to, to one of my, my last trips. Um, and the government really relied on us um, to, to do those just because we're so equipped. And we, and we stayed there for so long. Yeah. Like we were there for like 20 rotations. You know, I did five of them. I did a quarter of the rotations. Nuts. Um, <laughs> that went on for, you know, near 20, 15 years. Um, like that's a, that's a big burden to have on such few, few people. Yeah, uh, it's not a huge organization, that's why we're now seeing burnout of, of dudes uh, down the track. Um, but the Australian public doesn't, it's not really spoken of. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah. own sto- oh, sorry, you know, maybe 20 years from now, they'll, 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 I mean, they're already writing books about it. Yeah, uh, no front lines is a, is, a, is a book about our, but I don't. That's about twenty years of rotation. How much can you tell in four hundred pages? Yeah, like, exactly. that's not that's not detailed. There's a lot of things, and the amount of awards, like honors, the honors and award system, it's very, it's not equitable. Yeah, it's, um, it's very hush hush. Like it's it's almost like um you don't want to. I, I guess it is also like a very Australian thing where it's um we're so you're, you're laid back, you know. Critic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, and yeah, yeah, and you read like. You can, you can tell which one of the special forces citations or, or medals uh, to the regular army because they don't don't print their last name. It's just like Sergeant Sergeant yeah. S or you know Private Private B, um, opposed to anyone else on Australia Day or Queen's Birthday. That's the actual name. You can read what they did. Yeah, um, mate, you know, jump online one day, go back to to a year in that time frame. Yeah. Pick two of the same medals, one from each, and you, and you read the difference in in this in what one person did to the other. And yeah. I can tell you, like you read the one from the special forces community, and you're like, wow, like he only gave him that, and you're like, there's probably that should have been ten people should have got that, but they only get allocated one per yeah so many people, you know, like so they're like we can't give one to everyone. Yeah, um, I think my my first intro of like Australian sort of uh, SF the SF community was like um, Mark Donaldson's book uh, Crossroads. And, and he obviously was a yeah. VC recipient. <clears throat> um, yeah. I know, I, I know, I know Donaldson. Um, they, like I knew him from when he was, we're on this couple of same task force. So yeah. Um, I actually remember the day that he won the VC. Uh, and he's one of the nicest dudes in the world. And, yeah. And I, I actually did my sub two for corporal, which is our promotion course, uh, like infantry promotion course. To, and he was on it, and me and him, 
and another SAS guy were, um, you know, were the session commanders for our three respective sessions that day. Uh, I was just like, oh, I'm doing it the same time as the guy that's one of the VCs. Yeah. Who's in the SAS? Like, this, like, all right, I guess, I guess going to make me look bad again. Um, <laughs> But yeah, man, he and he went out of his way to help dudes. Like he, yeah. he was like, "Hey, man, just like here's a bit of advice, you know," because he was much older than me. Um, really good dude. Yeah, and he did like, a lot that day. That, I was going to say that that's one of those examples where, like, you're just reading this, you're like, I was just, you know, jaw on the floor, like, what in the hell is going on here? Like, <laughs> uh, you, you just, yeah, like you know that stuff like this happens, but like seeing it when it's actually written down and. And um, I think, like I mentioned before, with pop culture and stuff, it's it's very obviously American heavy because you know Hollywood and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But there's just like for any any Australians listening, um, you know, the that sort of I think Australians are like very patriotic, obviously, but it's it's different with yeah. like the military. There's not as much fanfare, I suppose. Um, so you know, if, if anyone's looking for any inspiration, like you said pick up uh, any bit of text with anything that's happened over the last 20 years um, and you'll find some pretty inspirational, heroic sort of stories. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. How much- if, you put it in, if you put it into context, like Task Force 66, um, you know, Cameron Baird won the VC. Like, that's right, yeah. After he, after he died, he's from our unit, from, from Brava Company. Yeah. Um, the SAS one two you know that's three vcs you know a, a regular army uh they won one as well but like three <laughs> vcs from that one task force insane, like that's, that's that's like an insane uh amount and you know like i was there the day um rs benrod smith won his vc we actually, and this is a story that's not going to come out um for, for a long time and i, I think people people don't understand the full context because they only talk about, uh, and that battle won a battle on them. So mm, like yeah. it's now known in history, the battle of Isha Wally Kot right, is yeah. known as the same as the battle of Longtan yeah. uh, in, in, in Vietnam era or the battle of Capion in the Korean era yeah. or the battle of Lone Pine from, from World War One in, yeah. in, in Gallipoli. Like that's the same stature of exactly. that one battle. Um, and they only really talk about um you know ben roberts like yeah. they were only there for like six six hours of of the whole battle, the whole battle yeah. Like, <laughs> it went for four days i know i was there yeah um like we flew in the night before and um again i was in in the mortar teams um this is like rotation 12 it's like my fourth well maybe it was 2010 no it was 2010 so it was like my third trip third or fourth trip um and i was in the back with my uh was had to run the mortar tube and protect company headquarters at the same time with 20% reduction in the amount of dudes that we have in our team. Like we only got seven man team. <laughs> uh, so two of us, two of us went out the back and uh, to provide uh, re-support for company headquarters. And I was with my mate Chiju, who was one of the last Australians to die overseas. And then just, and we had, we're up on like that edge of the valley uh just before the green belt was where all the villages are or like we were in one of the last houses that wasn't really in the green belt uh but it was like the start of where the green belt is and then they had t- uh, a couple of turns down in the valley uh in the green belt and just in a matter of seconds it just we heard it over the radio but you can start here because we're seeing on on 
on their radio traffic. Um, and we're like, yeah, something's going to happen here. You just got that feeling. Yeah. I mean, she just got down a little bit more, a little bit deeper in the hole that we're in because <laughs> uh, we were pretty exposed where we were. And, and then it just all broke loose. Like, and the amount of gunfire in that, in that first two minutes, like they threw everything they had at us. Yeah. And uh, I remember hearing stories of dudes like go to walk out a door and a machine gun just opens up in the door and he fell back and didn't get shot. Uh, and then they went out and shot a whole bunch of dudes. And I remember sitting there like pretty useless because we're, we're re- rear security and it's all happening uh, behind us. Yeah. But they were shooting up over the hill and the splash of the rounds were like landing like two or three meters in front of us. And we're like, can't really, like, if you think of the trajectory of the rounds, yeah. it's coming up over us our hill and then like, dropping in front of us like what am i going to do like it's if i'm going to get hit it's going to be hit from the sky it's going to like yeah exactly. the way the bullet coming down in, in its directory with gravity i was just like ah oh, man this is pretty exposed here so me and him had a, a good little chuckle to ourselves uh <laughs> watching that and that was that was the first five minutes of, of this battle that we ended up swapping out with uh company headquarters because that a mission came over the multitudes and there are on we're just providing uh support to the team's couple of snipers, I think the snipers were calling it in and uh, we were providing um, 81 mil uh, mortar support to, to the teams in contact. And that went that went for most of the day. And then what had happened is we'd kick their asses so hard that they would, the enemy had withdrawn and then they were in the next village around and then they, they caught, started calling all their mates. It was like, get here, the Australians are here. And so they were rallying the troops uh, yeah. from the enemy side, getting ready to do a counterattack on our position because we we held them off. We just stayed put and was like, hey, you're not taking this land. Which sees that we're holding it. Come get it. And um, they're like using their mobile phones. That must have flagged some SIG intelligence um, and reacted the SAS back at our headquarters, which were on short notice to move taskings. And they're like, all right, we've got three uh, MVIs, medium-valued individuals in this one village. Like, must be pretty important. Let's hit this target. Yeah. Um, but that's all the intel they had. That there was three dudes there. They didn't. They didn't understand the context because it was one village over. Um, it was actually disappointing that the high headquarters didn't put this together. But well, maybe they didn't. I just didn't realize. But that was they were organizing the counteroffensive to attack us. Yeah. So when those guys flew in on their two or three birds, everyone's just standing around. They're handing, literally handing out AKs and ammo belts. And so they just like turned and just started shooting the birds as they were coming in. An Afghan soldier, one of our partnering forces, so he, got, he gets shot in the bird. He stayed in. And um, that's when obviously SAS has sold the position. And um, yeah. Ben Robert Smith and two other dudes, I think one... Uh, Bravery, uh, metal, yeah, 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 on the PC, and um, um, so it's like massive, but like they only talk about that, but then they're like, um, they just jumped on the birds after that job was done and back on, went back to base, (laughs) yeah, we stayed there for another three days, (laughs) we're just like, all right, we'll start here and just go up the up up the up the valley and just continue the yeah, the the clearance of the valley, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and just like, hey, you think this is your land? It's your hope. It's your heartland. It's, you think it's a stronghold? Well, we're going to prove you wrong. And yeah, and 
and have a presence here. With, with that sort so, of, um, you know, that, that amount of contact and, and you mentioned before as well, like the, the government really sort of relying on you guys uh, and, and utilizing you guys to, you know, almost over the, the full potential. Um, what was the leadership like back then? Like, did, did you have that s- sort of support well, that you needed as well? Yeah, like our... Uh, like I was an NCO uh, towards the end, one of my last trips in 2012 and 14. Yeah. Um, but our NCOs were good. They were the best. Uh, the officers were good. Um, and the ones that weren't the best, they got mentored by the others. Um, or you just had really strong um, sergeants. Like our, our, the sergeants in our unit are some of the best in the world. And I, I really because we're under the conventional army's rank structure, like that position is afforded to a sergeant, yeah. but he's probably equivalent of a warrant officer or even a junior officer in, right. in regular army. So it's not, although yes, we're in their rank structure and we hold that rank. Um, it's just different. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the same. It's chalk and cheese. And, and you see that because even as a corporal, um, in SF, they will give you responsibility and they'll send you on a job where you have to liaise with captains and majors right. and, and provide your technical advice as a commando and a warfighter what you think that you know you should do. So uh, our leadership's good and, and we trained our dudes very well. Um, you know, and we had really good, really good officers. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say they were trained very well by the sergeants. Yeah. You know, the, the more time the sergeants invested in the officers, the better officers that we'd have. And obviously the better quality the sergeant was, you know, the better Everything quality. Everything falls the, into place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On, on the training side of things, you were um, at, at one point in your career in part of the Special Forces Training and Education Centre, is that right? So the yes. SFTC, is, is, that, is that the acronym? Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's called the Special Forces Training an education center and then you know, they have commando training wing, which is underneath, which the last couple of years, but that was like a posting where I, I, I was the number two in the, in the boats, yeah. the boat cell, like did amphibious operations, um, taught that course, both for supervisors and, and for the, the basic course for the new commandos coming through, nice. did the, the Klepper course. So I was an instructor in Klepper, which is this day is still one of the hardest things I've ever done, which is our, two-man kayak, collapsible kayak thing. It's like, yeah. it's, it's only a week-long course, but, man, it's a long, it it's a long week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it smokes you. Um, so I, I did that, but I'd been instructing um, out. Two Commando provides a lot of the NCOs, and even as a private, you would help and you would be uh, either enemy party or help run weapon stands. Right. For the for the reinforcement side, it's a large burden on on the unit. Um, so for like five years before I was actually posted in the school, you were doing all the courses okay. leading up to it. So gotcha. you you basically, and when you become an NCO, you basically go back and have to do all the courses again at the supervisor level. Right. Okay. So yeah. you were you were instructing the new dudes going through, and the school provides the qualified instructors and you're like the trainee supervisors or trainee instructors. And then, uh, but you're still essentially still a student, even though you're giving lessons to a student. 
uh, and the quality control is by the actual qualified dudes that either the unit provides or the, the course manager or senior instructors comes from uh, Special Forces Training Center. So in, in that environment, how quickly do the things change? Because, you know, obviously as as the war sort of went on, like the tactics, training procedures, TTPs and stuff would change quite quickly, I'd imagine. Like, what, was it a... Um, you know, was it a gradual sort of filter down or was it a, Hey, this happened last time we need to do this. So on like on a macro level, like before you rotate over, you would get a handover from the people in country and be like, Hey, these are the new uh, tactics and techniques and procedures that we're using yeah. uh, to counter the, the ever evolving threat. Sure. Now, if it was, um, and we actually learn a lot of stuff that would fit, would be a drastic change to the way we do things, then you would feed that directly into the school yeah. uh, and the school will start teaching that basically to the new NCOs uh, that are coming in the supervisor level and then the new recruits. So the product of, like, so when I did my course back in 2003, so the product they're getting now is, again, an evolution of two, three fold. So like you were, we're getting such good uh, training and we've just become better trainers because we've had that compound evolution uh, of war. So you're just constantly learning, constantly developing. Yeah. And one of our missions is to train the Afghan partnering force. Sure. So inherently our unit is better trainers than the rest of the army. Like yeah. when you're doing a counterinsurgency or unconventional warfare, you need to train people how to fight a war in a different language. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're very good trainers internally uh, for ourselves and, and for other people. So that that knowledge goes around very well uh, in its little ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and there's mechanisms in their place, like official mechanisms, but, um, you know, even CQBs change. You know, I remember back in the day it was like come in and, you know, you, you the four domination positions when you come into a room where now they do more of a hard walling uh, where they're constantly moving. Yeah. So, you know, that was a big in CT terms, a big a big change when they changed it. You know, I mean, back in 2008, nine, it was like the mid, it was Midwest shooting style. So it was more the high, high ready position uh, as opposed to like the low ready position. So yeah. this is and as the environment changes, like these private companies, especially in the US, like dudes develop tactics and then uh, it became core knowledge of the private sector and then they were training the armies and, you know, it's, it became the flavor of the month and everyone did that one until the next yeah. one came out. And it, it was just ever evolving, ever training. But, you know, the more knowledge you have, even if even if it doesn't stick and it doesn't become the thing, is like you may learn something that five years, 10 years down the track, who's like, hey, I did that. That train that applies in this context exactly. today in this application. It's just another tool in your in, in your in your toolbox that you can just pull out and and use. And I think that's what makes special forces communities better than conventional is that they are well trained and well educated. Yeah, and they they know a lot of things and they apply the right tool in the right circumstance where conventional armies only get trained to a standard and they don't understand it well enough. And you see this because I see units in conventional armies all the time, like they're dressed, they're dressed correctly and they look, they almost look SF, 
but then there's little things that they're doing that I'm like, mm. yeah, you know, those, those one percent, they add up to about 15%. Yeah. Uh, so you're 15% off the ball and it, and it may not look like much to an untrained eye, but you know, anyone that's trained at that higher level can, can really yeah. pick out just the way the guy's holding a weapon or, or that is just like you fundamentally are, Someone has taught you this, but you don't fundamentally you don't understand it yeah. because you're just going through the actions opposed to our dudes who actually understand what they're doing and yeah. can apply it in, in real time in live combat. So yeah, and also like just having the that combat experience as well, like you know, doing it for real as opposed to yeah. repetition in a you know in a safe and you know relatively safe environment back home. Um, make, makes I'd all say that, yeah, but it, we we got so good at, at developing our reinforcements that were coming through like the, the new guys is uh, in 2014 uh, no, 2012 like we got a whole bunch of uh, new guys rotate and those dudes were so good at coming in as privates right. way better than what I was when I came through as a pilot because yeah. they had refined the training so well the product that we were getting was much better yeah. So, okay. which enabled our unit to grow and do more things and expand and uh, and develop even quicker. And that's why you see two commando or the commando capability really exponentially grew over the time in Afghanistan. Is our lived experiences through combat, and then our ability to train that and influence the next generation coming through, yeah. almost in real time, um, yeah. had almost like an exponential effect on our capability, and we just took on more and more and more. And as SF units do all over the world, is you you don't say no. You just go, oh, okay, yeah, there's, the next one? there's a problem. You give it to us, we'll find a workable solution for it. Yeah. It may not be the exact solution, 100% solution, but it's the most workable solution that you've given us time to prepare sure. and resource to do. And that's at a detriment to the units because as you compoundly train units and give them two more and they take on too much, other things are going to fall off the wayside. But yeah. when you have, and that's what our unit is, is we are all round. We're an all rounder. We can do any position in the field. You can put one of our dudes in to do where you see in other units around the world, they're more specialized yeah. in that one skill set and they're good at that one skill set. Yeah. They're, they're probably better than anyone at that one skill set, but they're probably not as good as the, as the other things. Yeah, it, it's all, it's a bit like um you were mentioning earlier on about the you know in in the states like the Green Berets for instance they have their um, ODAs and then within that they have you know like their um, weapons sergeant the uh, comm sergeant medic and all that sort of stuff but at the same time they're all sort of uh, trained up on each other's skill sets to a certain extent uh, so that you can sort of filter them within their own teams yeah um, and, and, they, and they do boats as well like yeah. they do amphibious stuff but you know. Um, my experience uh, working with the ODAs is like they are awesome uh, as irregular warfare. Yeah, like, like feeding yeah, coin and yeah. Yeah, that's like irregular warfare. That is their bread and butter. And you see them shifting from they went very direct action like all special forces did and were yeah. only counting on direct shifts. And now they're doing a shift backwards uh, and they're coming, it's almost coming full circle back to what their core skill set is. Yeah. Uh, is being the the U.S. Army's home of irregular warfare. Like yeah. They do that better than anyone in the world. Yeah. Yes, they can do all these other skill sets, 
Um, but their bread and butter is, yeah, the UW submission. Yeah. yeah. And it's like Rangers, you know, like FL Sieges. They're like FL Sieges. That's what they're, yeah. they're designed for. Take out of airfield. Like, um, you know, every, though they're very specialized units. Yeah. The, the, I, I'd say the training is very similar across the board. Uh, and we sent dudes uh, over there to do some of their training and they come over, over to us at individual level and we also do it at um unit training level or, or small team training uh level the the training the people are we're, we're all cut from the same cloth we're yeah. all exactly the same it's just they are applying because of their mass they can apply specialties to their unit where we're we're more we have to be broader as a unit sure. and do we have to be responsible for more things just there's there's, there's only three thousand professional forces in australia but yeah you have to do everything, like yeah. everything that, and you got to remember the mission. Uh, like we're responsible for everything outside the capability of the ADF. Yeah. So if the rest of the Army, Navy, and Air Force can't do it, here you go. Guess what? Special <laughs> Special Forces. Yeah. It's now you. You are now responsible for it yeah. until you build it up to a point and hand it back to Army, and then Army goes, "Oh, we can do that now." Yeah. And then they filter it in into their their construct. Like that's how the ecosystem works yeah we design we develop you get it to a point you train them bring them up to speed they might then it may become conventional um you know we're responsible like one of our units like task force 66 we like really led the way in uh training partner forces in afghanistan we became really good at that my mate that i joined with he he was a lance corporal back when on on rotation four and there was he basically raised the capability back in like zero seven, yeah. and it wasn't the conventional army didn't start doing that until like two thousand eleven or twelve. Yeah. Like, that like sort of um yeah. trickle down effect. Like supposedly, you know, in, yeah. in, in every industry, really, like you, you think like Formula One develops all these cool things, and then eventually trickles down to you know commercial vehicles that we we drive now. Yeah. Um, and it's the same sort of thing with the military, but like it's it's amazing how much has happened within that twenty year period because of the speed of war what has had to develop, like you were saying before, you know, from that 110 Defender, the, a couple of rotations later, you're driving in an up-armored vehicle, which is stopping yeah. uh, all, you know, all sorts of things and preventing guys from getting killed, you know, they're getting injured but not killed, uh, which is absolutely amazing because it's saving lives. Um, what? So just uh, towards the end of your military career, what was the, um, maybe the, the decision to, to re- retire and, and that sort of thing? What, what year was that? Uh, so it was 2015, so it was 13 years I did. I ended up as a um, – so I ended up doing five SOTGs and four um, security de- detachment, like close personal detection. Yeah. And the PSD last job I did – yeah, PSDs. Um, and my last job was running uh, a team um, for the senior ranking general for, for Australia, yeah. uh, which is – most other armies, that's the military police that do that because he was classified as a three-star. Um, we, I was responsible for that that skill set. Um, and so he had a, a four-man protection whole time he was there. Uh, I think he was deputy chief of staff uh, for re- uh, resources for all of Afghanistan. Okay. So yeah. all, all coalition uh, material support. No big up. deal. <laughs> yeah, he was 
he's a very busy guy and uh, a two star actually got got killed while we were over there. Okay. Well, um, yeah. uh, from an insider threat. Um, yeah, I think I, I remember. Um, what what year was that? I think 2014. I think yeah. it was um, the first time a two star general had been killed since like World War Two. Yeah, yeah right. it was yeah. like a big deal, and it it, it shook the higher. Uh, echelon pretty hard because yeah. you know how often does a general get killed yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know people started taking things seriously or more seriously than putting the amount of effort that they should have been putting in because they realised wow you know we're not actually as safe as we are yeah. um, which was never my case I'm a, I'm a happy guy most of the time I love to party but uh, when the job's on the job's on yeah. uh, uh, and I'm serious about it um, I'm like yin and yang like that. I know when to switch on and switch off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did that, and uh, that's how I got into the you know close protection world. Um, you know, we do our units responsible for the uh, senior ranking Australians and politicians that come over. They hand over from our federal police over to us. But just the federal police don't have the skill set for warlike conditions. Yeah. So hostile areas, um, and you know that was my first time really for a whole trip as, as a team commander. Uh, the other trips I did in 2012, I was, I ran a team, um, but I had a sergeant in my team, but he injured himself. And so I was only taking over for specific missions. Right. And when I'd come back to base, he was still there to, to mentor to me. So I grew a lot in that in that t- 2012 period when you're, when the buck stops with you and you're, you're in charge. And, um, and then it just, you know, Fundamentally, at some point in your career, for whatever reason, the army's direction changes and your direction changes. Yeah. And I always give the analogy to people when they they get out. The army is a train and it's on its tracks and it's going at its speed. And you're a passenger on that train. And when you want to leave, uh, for whatever reason, if it's you get you get kicked out medically, you you, you want to leave because you're family, for whatever reason that is. Um, it's just your time. You you have to jump off that train. It ain't stopping at that platform, and yeah. it's it's going. So the army's mission is to to, to win wars, um, and it's not going to slow down for a single individual person. So you, whatever that catalyst is, um, you leave and you, you have to get on with it. And it's it's how you recover as an individual. Uh, and this is why I'm so passionate about. Like, when you reached out, I was more than happy to help when you left uh, the police and you wanted to, because I know how hard it is to to transition. You know, school, I joined the army, you know, I was then 30-something years old yeah. um, and, you know, I didn't even know how to go to the doctor. I didn't have a Medicare card. I, yeah. I didn't know I was a dentist. It took me three years to find a dentist that I wanted to, <laughs> to go to. Like, Yeah, you like, just... You're almost um like spoiled in a way because like, everything's sort of done for you uh, when you're in the military. Like, and, and not to say booking that... your own flights. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. You yeah. don't even book your own flights. Like, someone <laughs> books your flight. That's like a specific job. Yeah, they book yeah. your flights. Like, you get a you get a letter and you're like or an email and you're like, oh yeah, just turn up here at that time. And yeah, do, do you think you took like, uh, for granted like those support elements? Um, you know, like as hundred oh, percent as a civilian now. And, yeah. Yeah, and even like you know, infantry doesn't really like support people. Support people don't like infantry. Yeah, um, no one likes SF. SF doesn't like anyone else. But I was like, <laughs> when I did that job with that uh, logistics general, I, I realized that 
it's a big machine and I was only a very small part in it yeah. like because I had that broader understanding and uh, so I've got a lot of respect for the uh, the logisticians yeah. uh, the logistics people in the military that, that do everything for you and get you, fix your car and uh, and get the petrol for your car and you're just like oh, I didn't even think about that like, <laughs> you already think about guns down range shooting people yeah um, in, like win the fight you're not thinking about like how's my food getting to the point that it gets on the helicopter to get out to me? I was just like, where the fuck's my food? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you just I have no context of the actual environment. So, yeah. The big machine that's around you, yeah. And then, and then yeah, yeah you, get, you get out and on Civvy Street, you're sort of like, you've got bills, you've got, you know, all the little things in yeah. between that you have to deal with traffic and this and that. It's just, yeah. And I refined my life, like, because I was going overseas so much, like every uh, six to 12 months. Yeah. Like, I had, like, direct debited everything like I, I i i live with one of my old mates from school he would look after all my shit like i was living like <laughs> this perpetual cycle like yeah i was just like i didn't own possessions yeah i had like my nice clothes when i come back and go out like, yeah. but i was just like i ran on a minimal lifestyle because i was just in that like loop of just going overseas all the time and then I got old. <laughs> I got a, I, I got a family. Um, so like had a wife and uh, a seven year old uh, stepson, um, and I pretty much got married the year that that I left. Okay, and yeah. like life life changes when that when that happens. You yeah. know, like you as a single bloke going to Afghanistan, that that is your one focus, uh, the mission, uh, and your mates. But then like your perspective changes towards you know family and you're brought on you you get educated i actually got out i was just like oh, i needed a i needed a change i wanted to my, do something my brother yeah i want to do something my brother was a carpenter friends were like i'll just i'll just be a builder like how yeah. hard is it like you know the the construction industry is quite profitable here in australia and um, yeah. it's not the smartest dudes uh in the industry i was like i I'm pretty sure I can do that. So I jumped out. I went, I went to school. I, I learned how to be a builder and a carpenter. And I was like, you know, it's supposed to take four years to be a, a carpenter and, and two years to learn your building trade. I was like, yeah. I did the building trade, the building one in like under 12 months and I, I think 18 months for the carpenter. I was just like, and I just remember like, I just like, just give me the information and I'll just do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to waste my time because all we have in time, time's the only thing that you can't get back. Yeah. Right. So like I'm very conscious of wasting time. Um, and so I'm like, if I don't have to be there doing something, I don't want to be doing, doing that. I want to do something else. So I was like, just, yeah, give me the tests. I'll do the test now. Yeah. And I was supposed <laughs> to get like credited because I'd done the building thing first and then doing carpentry, which is a low level qualification. I was supposed to get credited for like some of the safety stuff because I was a safety officer in the army. Like I've, yeah. I've got the equivalent of diploma and work health safety. Uh, and then they're like, you have to do the carpentry safety course. I was like, I used to run complex like ranges with explosives. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what a hard hat is. Yeah. And they're like, well, you have to do the test. And so I was just like, well, just give me the test. And I like literally he gave me the test and like I didn't even sit down. I just did it on his desk and I just gave it to him. <laughs> And I was like, I was like, got another one. Like, what's so he just like I did. I think I did like seven subjects like in front of him. It was like all the paper tests. And he's just like, I was like, I remember saying, he's like, these are the questions you're asking. This is pretty pretty basic, man. Like, <laughs> I thought it was going to be more complicated. Like, as a carpenter, and he was just like, no, nah, no, nah, that's that's the standard. <laughs> um, 
so I did that and then uh, I was working a construction game to do something different, you know, um, and then you find yourself back on the circuit, um, on the private security circuit, people call you because your skill sets, um, yeah. your name gets thrown around and I ended up working for a few big uh, US defence contractors. Um, and they come out and they wanted specialty drivers. Uh, so I jumped on and, uh, and did that, you know, a couple of weeks here and there. And, um, yeah, some big company names. And was that in this, in Australia uh, or um, obviously? Yeah, in, in, in Australia. So whenever they fly fly out, they our market over here for the people that don't know is there's a lot of security companies. Ninety nine percent of the manpower is garbage, yeah. um, and, and you know that from the police uh, perspective. And they don't have like a risk background where they don't understand inherent like risk-based decisions. They just yeah. know the actions to carry out. Um, so, you know, people want adults uh, that understand things and have, you know, can actually think in a, in a changing environment. So, like, yeah. you know, it goes around, you know, it's like it's the circuit. It goes around the circuit and all the boys that have just got out, they get all the phone calls and do all the jobs because we can do those jobs when we're still in. Um, and I just kept doing it and then, um, I won't say the name of the company, uh, but I was working for this company and the guy that was running was like a rich kid and took over from his dad and they were getting all the, these good contracts. And he called me. I was manning the jobs. So I was finding the dudes for it. I was paying for the hotels, paying for the organizing cars, doing all the logistics. And I was like, I've been working with this guy on and off like a couple of weeks a year. Yeah. Uh, and then he tried to stump me and he goes, oh, I'm not going to pay for that bill. Or like I was like, bro, I've just put up like twenty grand for like, and he goes, oh, I'll pay you when they pay me. I was like, no, you pay me now. Oh god! Uh, then he's like, oh, I'm only going to pay you this much an hour when we agreed on, you know, double that or or yeah. whatever. Or he's like, I'm not paying for the parking tickets because we didn't discuss that before. And I was like, but you gave me authority to do the job, and you can fund the job, yeah, because you weren't here because uh, he was down in Melbourne or whatever, and I was, this was up in Sydney or Canberra. So I was like, I was just solving problems for people. And, and uh, the defence contractor, their internal team was like, hey, can you guys just like start a company and we pay you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you cut out the other guy. Because yeah. I, I hate that guy. He's yeah. like, causes more problems than he than he solves. You guys just get shit done. So my business partner now, just reads his uh, federal police background. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how did you and Josh um, uh, meet up or know so, each other? Yeah, so we met on one of these jobs and um, he was running a Canberra team and I was running a Sydney team for this for these things. But um, the client, of, like Canberra, it's like a 40-minute flight or whatever, but it's a three-hour drive. <laughs> uh, so the client flew and then Josh had to drive the car up. <laughs> uh, from 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 Canberra, and um, so so it would meet him there because um, he had another meeting. Yeah, it was a team of four or five at each in each city. Yeah, plus the team that actually came in and oversaw the whole thing. So we met on that, and we met on a couple of other jobs, and the same thing happened to him <laughs> um, with this with this one manager, and uh, we just like, and everyone was just like you you like. It's like we're going out trying to steal people's clients because I'm I'm not like that. Like yeah. um, the person I'm working for, I, I, like I respect and I trust that person. Um, but this guy just 
just fucked us over in every avenue. I was just like, mate, I'm not working for you anymore. And yeah. I'll, I'll just go do my, do my own thing. And yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I still know guys that work for him, the same problems fucking five years later. Like oh. they're still in the like, yeah. Uh, dude, I went rotation fucking two. He, he works for him now and he comes up this dubs jobs with him. He goes, fuck man, I wish you guys were a bit bigger at a few more full-time positions. But, you know, they got bought out by a major security company and okay, yeah. um, uh, the product's not what it is. Because at the end of the day, you're, people are your product. Like yeah, if you yeah. have good people, like, and I'm, I'm more willing to pay a dude more money to take less problems away from me yes. and pay him accordingly and he will enjoy that because a lot of people don't want to start their own company. Yeah. People just want to be on the circuit. They don't want the hassle of talking to clients and worrying about finances and, and organizing. It's like behind, they want to be like the soldier in the army that everything's yeah. done for them. Exactly. Because like, <laughs> they've grown up in that, 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 that lifestyle. That's right. Um, they don't want to do everything. But me and Josh got together. Uh, we started Empire. But he started it uh, by himself, but he wanted to bring a partner on to start the uh, New South Wales like arm of it, the other state. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, we just got along. Uh, yeah, he's really good mates. He's like one of the boys in the army, even though we, we never surfed together. So, yeah, we just got on. We're uh, kicking goals. We're nice. people like us. We solve problems. And again, it's that classic I have a problem. I've had all these providers. The same shit keeps happening. Can yeah. you solve this problem for me? And it, it, I don't even think it's a big deal what I'm doing, but maybe that I just don't understand other people's perception of me or perception of our company, but we s- seem to solve, in my head, they're simple things. Yeah. But maybe it's the simple things that people want off their plate. And it's that um, sort of like um, you mentioned before as well, with like that sort of SF um, mindset where, you know, big army might not be able to solve it. Navy might not be able to solve it. So we'll give it to the SF guys. They'll yeah. fix it in order to the best of, it could be, to the best of uh, their ability or however it may, whatever it may be. And then, you know, return the, uh, the finished product and, and solve that situation really. Yeah. And that's, I think and we use like industry dudes as well. Uh, the guys that just grow up in the industry and might have background in the other dudes have background in policing yeah. um, and, and military. And it's the combination of in the private sector. I think it's a combination of all three that, that makes it well. Cause when I got on, um, I didn't understand guards, like just your normal stadium man, guard. Man, I didn't, yeah, yeah man, man, manpower guard. Like I didn't understand how how much they just didn't care. They were just like there to put a shirt on. That's it. <laughs> um, and it was we um, we quickly won the uh, or became one of the providers that the UFC uses here in Australia. Um, Josh worked at uh, Melbourne Stadium. The UFC came through, I think it was the Ronda Rousey uh, fight, and he worked with uh, Steve Reed. And then um, we helped him out in a Sydney show, and then we ended up, they called us for Perth, and we just kept going around. And we just, you know, and the team, the team grew bigger and bigger as, as, as the UFC grew bigger and bigger. They needed more and more security. Um, yeah. And that's how, obviously, that. Uh, Kenny and uh, and Tiny and, and Elliot and, and all that on, on the circuit um, a couple of times and me, me, 
you just get along with people like yeah. it's because it's like this sh- the shared background and like you know some wonderful guys is from Tent Mountain uh, which we work with Tent Mountain overseas uh, and just because I grew up working with Americans I like I, I get along with Americans quite easily like it's just second nature to me yeah. where you know other people might find them very abrasive or whatever and um, or those are the UK people was like we work with the UK a lot. So I, I just grew with these because you're always overseas again with yeah. in this multicultural coalition, you know? So um, I just find it very easy to talk to that, that's that style of person. Like, yeah. it's, like it's like, we're all, we're all molds just come from different places uh, sort of thing. So. And it's the same sort of thing. I suppose like you've got that one mission, like whether it's a UFC event, um, you know, you're, you're just making sure everything goes off without a hitch um and you know you from those backgrounds you have got that lateral thinking that risk um you know risk management sort of mentality as well like so everything's kind of like mirroring what you did in sf but in in the private sector really yeah and i, I think you're like people obviously there's there's a couple of different terms in when you, when you're on the circuit it's like this close protection bodyguard and executive protection yeah and 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 people kind of ask me the, the difference um, and, you know, Americans often talk about executive protection, but they use that on the same, like everything is now just called executive protection over there, where in the UK you use close protection. Um, and I, I put a lens on it as in what, like break it down at a more macro level, like what job or who's your client you're actually protecting? Is it celebrities? Mm. Is it executives? Is it a family? Is it a, is it like a, a kid? Because like a lot of times over here, where I'm doing stuff for lawyers, where it's it's a, a husband and wife have split and it's become hostile, yeah. And I have to go in and do the changeover for the kid from the mother to the father because yeah. that can become violent. It's that it becomes like a, a friction point. Each one of those different things is a different threat profile. Yeah. So you can't like the old bodyguard just following someone around like oh, I'm big muscle. Like I'm not a big guy. Uh, I'm probably not the best fighter, but if I've got into a fight, I've failed my mission. Yeah, exactly. Like This is like, like you should mitigate that beforehand or be able to de-escalate. Like don't get me wrong, the, uh, uh, and Byron Rogers uh, says it well, is like the hard skills will save your life, um, but it's the soft skills that will keep getting you paid. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's those small things. It's like, if you have to go kinetic, like whatever happens, that client probably ain't going to call you again. Yeah. You yeah, know, exactly. like, and you're going to get fired because it went kinetic. Yeah. Like that to me, you the quite boring jobs. They're boring because you've planned them so well and you've mitigated with like, with controls, the risk out of the, the thing. So you've planned specific routes. You've, You've organized things so they flow, those friction points, so they're not there anymore. And the clients, it's, they don't see any of that. They just see you guys driving around, but you're like, the person that can organize logistics well, like, again, that's that's a difference. This is like, exactly. you need to be able to organize flights or, hey, he's going, he's just changed his itinerary. He wants cars. He wants a limo instead of like, you got you need to be able to do the hustle and, uh, and organize that sort of stuff in a safe manner. And people are like, oh, I'm not going to carry the bags. I was like, well, at some point you're going to have to carry the bags. Exactly. Yeah, like, that's, that's that soft like, skill that you're um, just yeah talking about that keeps getting you. Paid. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, it's 
it's a weird industry. It's not, it's only small in Australia. Like, you know, most, you can't, there's probably only five, maybe five good companies yeah. uh, in Australia. Like I know most of those people um, and we all work on each other's jobs. We all know each other. Like if, if a big job comes out. You'll band together sort of. Whoever's the prime contractor, you're probably helping the other four companies, probably helping out in some sort of way. Like it's, it's a pretty small community here. Yeah, but is you need it's more than just risk. It's like hey, like even at an operator level, like if you're just a body in that team, like what do you bring to the table? Do you bring another skill set that someone in the team doesn't have? So a lot of like my guys have like an intelligence background. So OSINT, which is a ever growing uh, industry now, like open source intelligence. Yeah. Like most of the three letter agencies don't even use classified Intel anymore. It's all open source. So, yeah. like, uh, shout out to Chris Poulter from OSINT Combined. And he, he was a team commander mate with me in the regiment. Like, he left the army and created an intelligence platform and he teaches intelligence gathering. Yeah. Like, to everyone. Like, he is world renowned, one of the best in the industry now. Um, that's the sort of thing you need to know. So, you can drive at the operator level drive your intelligence for your team commander. Yeah. If you want to get called and and be a a good dude, like be the dude that gets called all the time. Not only do you have to turn up every time when that guy calls, but what skill set do you do you bring that makes you better than the other guy? Yeah, how do you add so value to the team and yeah. Like if you're just like, yeah man, I can handle myself, well that's like one percent of the job. Like <laughs> if you can handle yourself and you can't organize a new new convoy like new cars or a new flight if i give you that as a as a, as a team lead and just like hey i need you to book the flights here's a credit card i'm going to go deal with some other stuff that's very important yeah um and i come back and it's not organized like i'm not calling you again yeah exactly. Like, because exactly. you've made us all look bad um medical stuff again like everyone just does the bare minimum um are you going above and beyond and I probably do more me- medical stuff now than I did when I was in the army. And that's through my volunteering through uh life saving, one of the emergency services here. Um, but I learned that because it's a skill set that I need in my private sector as well. Was, yeah. uh, so like, do you know how to put an OP airway in someone or, and use a, a, bad, a bag of valve mask to resuscitate someone with a, with a defib? Like that's a pretty yeah. standard thing, um, the defib. But like, can you go above and beyond and, you know, some of our medical kits that we set up, people are like, when I open the, the boot to put their luggage what in, they're like, they see, they're like, you have all this? And I was like, yeah, like, but I've used it. Like, yeah. I've used it, like, drive down the road and there's a car accident. I get out there and, like, help someone. Exactly. There's- I was going to say, so one of the things I think, um, is either you posted it or um, or uh, Empire posted it as a, as a organization was um, carry the responsibility, carry the response. And I, I, I absolutely love that that mentality where, um, you know, we were discussing this as well before the podcast started was, I think there's so, such a reliance on emergency services. Um, and, and I think in Australia, especially they do such a fantastic job, but in the moment yeah. that you need it, uh, you know, it's the seconds that count, not the minutes, um, you know, average response times are within sort of 10 minutes or so. Um, but when you've got a, you know, a cat hemorrhage or something like that, it's the seconds that count. So having the right, 
uh, gear is great, but having the right training um, is is just as important as well. Yeah, and the ability to act. Yeah, like a lot of people have the training. You know, I'll do my first aid with my defib. Can do resuscitation. Like it's a yeah. pretty standard thing here in Australia for our security guard. It might not be globally, but like every security guard, your pub bouncer needs to have that. Yeah. Like I think it's one in five people in every workplace has to have first aid or whatever it is in a high-risk work setting. But every security guard needs to have that. And I actually did a UFC job um, and the venue had had guards. That was the first time I met uh, Kenny from the UFC. Um, and not everyone came out because there was another incident that happened. So me and Kenny had to run this job the first time we met, uh, first UFC job I did. And it was in Parramatta, which is um, it's not the best crowd of people out there <laughs> turn up. Uh, um, and it was like right near the shopping centre. And like this dude, it was a junkie. He turned up, he had his methadone and he uh, started having a seizure oh, like yeah. in between the like outer door and the inner door of this, this event. So right um, in your responsibility area, area of responsibility. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so like... I was just like, yeah, isolate that area, open the side door. Hey, tell the guard at the front, send everyone around the side. The door's open. There's a guard there and you can come in through that side door. One of them is like that. That was my quick decision-making, done that. And then yeah. I was like, got that sorted. I'll go back and check on um, the guy that's having seizure. And I left him there with two guards. Yeah. Right. And so it's taken me like a minute and a half to like run around this building and coordinate the um, – the new entry exit point. I get back in there. One guy standing up, like with his radio, like ready to speak on the radio, but wasn't actually speaking. And then the other dude is like kneeled down next to the, the guy's head, just saying constantly, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And the dude's like having a seizure. He's like frothing from the mouth, oh, like he's man. convulsing. And, um, uh, and this the patient had basically. He'd been prone to seizures before and then obviously got on the methadone and that, that, that caused the exactly seizure. It, yeah. yeah, and there was a uh, – he had a carer there with him. Um, I don't know, it was his mum or his girlfriend or whoever. Um, and I was like – I just put my hand on this dude's shoulder and I was like, hey, mate, um, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm providing, for, I'm providing first aid. Oh, and I just went – I just went, bro, what, what's wrong with him? He goes – He's injured. And I was like, that was the level of response in this. And I was like, all right. I went into my training mode. I was like, because I'm in a, a trainer at heart. I was like, mate, what are the songs and symptoms? <laughs> like, what do you see? And I start like, and I know like the treatment procedures, not much you can, yeah. there's not much you can do. You just like you support make, the head, make like, him ma- maintain the yeah. area, make him safe, try to like, um, like hold him down, don't put anything in his mouth but yeah. make sure the airway is clear, which was happening. So there was no risk of further damage. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I'll just use this as an opportunity to train this guy and mentor him on the job. Uh, and he wasn't even one of my guys. And he was just like, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, it's clearly seizure. Yeah. Like, do you see where you've gone wrong? And he goes, no, not, not really. I was just like, oh, so that's like the level that I was dealing with. And then one of the executives from the USC, uh, the ambulance was rolled in and they'd blocked their like the exit point. And I had four paramedics when they turned up and they're they're working on this dude. 
Like he'd gone to cardiac arrest after this. He'd gone cardiac arrest. Um, so they've got the OP airway down his mouth. They're breathing for him. Mm. Got EKG machine on. They're shocking him. They're working on this dude 45 minutes. Cool. And um, the two other corners had crossed over, like red, red corner and blue corner, and, um, which is big no-no in, in protocol. I was like, well, there's nothing really I can do. Yeah. Like, I don't know why you guys stressing out. I, I told everyone, hey, we're just going to have to chill out. Here's another review. If you go there, keep them separated where we can. This executive was like, oh, God. Um, come on, we need to move these ambulances. I was like, mate, we can't move the ambulances. Yeah. And he was like, why? And I just like, I was like, he just wouldn't listen to me. And I didn't want to like tell him too much. because yeah. I, And I just, he, he, he wanted an answer. I was like, all right, come with me. And so like I walked him into between the front door and the, um, the inner lock door and I opened it and he's like just <laughs> in a plates on this dude's <laughs> eyes. He just like sees four people working on this one dude. I was like, I'm pretty sure that guy's going to die. Yeah. Um, so no one else knows about this. Uh, we've kept it pretty quiet. Um, none of the public know about it. None of the <laughs> team know about it. Basically me and you know about it now. Uh, he goes, okay, yeah, we should, we should let them, let them continue. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's like, that's a good idea. Anyway, they, they they stabilized the guy. They, I don't know how, pumped him full of other drugs and and good work to the paramedics. They yeah. they got him up, got him on the bus and got him out of there. And, and um, <laughs> anyway, it all went to plan. Everyone like no one knew about it. And, and this guy comes up to me like, he, like at the show a couple of he goes, mate, some good news. Like that guy lived. And I was like, I was like, what guy? Yeah, which goes, one are you talking about? <laughs> That guy from Thursday, he, he lived. And I was like, what fuck do I care if that guy lives or dies? I'm like, yeah. fucking nobody. I was like, he goes, but you were like, and I was like, I was doing my job. Like, I had no emotional connection to that. Yeah. I was just doing the best job that I was employed to do at the time. Yeah. And I'm going to give it everything that I have, but I don't actually care. Yeah. And then you clock out. And, <laughs> and that's like the best, it, you know, it, it sounds harsh, but like, it's like the best mentality to have because otherwise you just carry that burden with you all the time. And it's like, no, no, yeah. you, you clock in, you clock out, check your bags at the door. And I think that's maybe, in my opinion, what would promote like the longevity of your mental health and resilience really is, is to not constantly and, think about things all the time. And it's not it's not because I'm a heartless person. No, like yeah. I care about my friends and family. And if my friends, like if you were there, I would ha- have some sort of emotional connection, connection to, yeah. to that to that incident. I would do my job and then it would probably affect me afterwards yeah. because... We're not robots, but I would deal with it and get over it. But like, I was like, oh, I don't care about it. Like, <laughs> it's some random junkie that we saved. Like, I was just doing that because I didn't risk the reputation for the UFC, yeah. which again, a lot of people don't don't understand. Is like, as a client, like I care what happens to my client because it affects him. Yeah, you know, because and it's if you do something wrong, and you you made a point earlier about. Um, you know, green protesters and that sort of stuff, uh, or in the media, like and, and all these protests. If you do something wrong, that can c- cause you headaches down the track. Yeah. You know, you could do something wrong at one event, and then the next day, you have protesters there protesting because if the way you did something, the way you treated, the way you acted, could offended someone. So, yeah. you know, your actions do matter. Um, and if you don't understand that as an operator, like that's going to cause you risk down the track that I just one if I have less risk I don't have to deal with it my job is easier so I'm going to deal with it now when it's nothing opposed to 
when it becomes something later on because you're just going to give yourself a headache. Exactly. And I think a lot of people just don't understand that like in, in the game. Um, it, yeah. m- moving with the um, the business, so you know, obviously Empire Protection was started up and then um, the second arm to it is Empire Institute, which um, uh, obviously did a uh, your heat course, which is which is awesome. Um, yeah, can, can you talk about the Empire Institute uh, side of things? Yeah, so uh, I suppose for both, it's all it's branded Empire Institute. It's still part of our company. So our company essentially does uh, executive and close protection and other security services. We provide uh, medical and logistical support. Uh, we do. Uh, open source intelligence and advanced intelligence uh, reporting. Um, we uh, do training both for the private sector, which is our, our institute stuff. We also do like uh, law enforcement and uh, government, like army training for some uh, clients around the world. Yep. Um, so we have a whole suite of things, but I suppose in the, in the, new, the new age, um, we want to put stuff up online and it was because of COVID and we, we, I just it was locked in my house and I was like, you know what, I'll just build a website. So I jumped on online and taught myself how to build a website and uh, e-learning platform, which, you know, to, uh, I, I don't build the framework. It's there for you. Mate. There's a lot of products out there, whatever you, what do you, there's four or five big reputable companies that you do. Yeah. So we started building a lot of course. So we built like a one course for just normal security guards here in Australia. Um, we've done the heat course so the hostile environment awareness training, which is essentially the 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 online, it's not to replace your face-to-face training, but it no, is yeah. the it's power points supplement that you to would, have. Yeah, and to work out the economics of like running a face-to-face course, yeah. we will sell you, or some people just can't afford to do a face-to-face course. Yeah. So why should they be excluded? So I can teach people a lot of stuff uh, through online training. Yeah. Um, and cheaply and get it out to the masses so everyone's more better prepared yeah. better prepared and then you do the face-to-face training for those um, people that so our heat course is a travel risk course essentially yeah. and any journalist any NGO worker any government worker working overseas should if you travel overseas you should probably do a course like that and this is like level one online yeah the basics you need to know in theory and then when we do the actual hostile environment awareness training face-to-face, we have a level one course and a level two course. Yeah. Level one course is all the basic stuff, so your hands-on stuff. We don't reteach that stuff. It's like, hey, you teach that when you come to the course. If you don't know that, you're going to struggle on that yeah. on that next course. And then the advanced course is, it, uh, is for those people that go to like really unique places or where we'll design that course for um, an organization. So, hey, we're sending people to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. There'll be theater specific, job specific. So, we're sending people to, to Papua New Guinea that are aid workers. All yeah. right. These are the things you're going to need to know in this environment, in that, that, that organization. Or it could be, hey, I'm going to, you know, Thailand to do a news report in the jungle somewhere. So, yeah. then we'll design that advanced course to. To, to, to that, um, which I think a lot more people are putting that training aspect on and so they can not pay for security for everyone. Yeah. And it's a way to de-risk your, 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 your security uh, profile across the whole company because you yeah. can't provide protection for, every, yeah. for everyone. That, yeah. So like, how do you train those people that are going to be in those environments um, 
more often than not. And hey, there's three levels of courses to yeah. fill that gap. But then we've got some conflict uh, de-escalation stuff. Um, our friends at Red Team, uh, which is a, a company here in Australia that uh, basically train all the police and military in um, like IED uh, explosives and that sort of stuff, how to defuse them and that sort of stuff. They yeah. keep up to date. Um, so we did a joint course about uh, bomb awareness training. So if you're specific, suspicious ages yeah that was a mouthful um so we did you know and that's again for all the shop assistants in a in a store it doesn't need to be the security guards it's the shop exactly. assistants yeah sure everyone everyone that all the all the people at stadium the the, the the cleaners the they're the ones that are going to be out on the ground as your eyes and ears and you know your intelligence nodes out there they're going to what to do if they see that yeah. Um, so that they can pass the right information on to the security team uh, to do that. So we're, it's getting there. There's a few good uh, courses on there. We're just going to slowly build it up over time. So there's nice. basically a database of, of, of courses that people can do. And you can go back and redo those courses Yeah. like over and over again. So, you know, you're going to go travel again soon. You might jump on and, and do refresh your- Hey, yeah, just refresh your yeah. thing just before that, that, that course. I was going to say with the with the heat course or the hostile environment awareness training course, um, I like that you mentioned that it's it's also you know it could be thought of as a travel risk sort of um, yeah you know, management sort of course. Uh, I think for those listening, you know, not everyone's going to be from a security or a you know military police background. I think it's actually really important to do that course in the current state of affairs with COVID um, because it just gives you options to you know things that you don't normally think about when you you know. Traditional booking your planning trip. hotels and moving. It, it's like exactly. it's those logistics moves when you're doing the job yourself, you don't have someone planning for you. Exactly. You, it could be like I'm putting you like there's a thing on riots in there, like what yeah. to do, like in the context of when you see a riot or a protest or anything like that. Like, yeah, that's a dangerous place. Yeah, a, a protest is just a riot that hasn't gone violent. <laughs> exactly. And it right. doesn't take much. Just needs it, a little flashpoint. It can literally yeah. take two people to turn that into a riot and yeah. it can go dangerous yeah. very quickly and have catastrophic events. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's only like third world countries. I was like, the US. Yeah. Like the US right now has like over the last two years, that's like Australia. We've started yeah. having massive protests that have gone violent and turned into riots. Yeah. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, we were looking after a lot of the media crews Crews on that um, over the last couple of weeks. Like yeah. we started off with one network and we ended up with fucking four outlets uh, yeah. across prints, you know, print journalists, uh, still photographers, and, and, and camera crews. Yeah. Like just because their dudes were well trained. It's also, we actually build it to, tra- uh, to train our own dudes. Um, so you get people coming in and you may have heard them for a friend of a friend, you need an extra dude on your team. Um, it's like, hey man, go do this course. Um, I can check that the person's done that course and done all that thing. Is at least he has a, like a, a baseline, and we've got ones for our specific for our employees that aren't on the website. Yeah. Um, all those, you know, those little lessons learned. You exactly. You know, you've, you've, over the last six months of this job, you've picked up all these little things that yeah. uh, no one's taught taught you in a course. We're trying to yeah hone in on that and, and harness that intelligence. It's like you're saying that the one percent is adding up. Um, yeah, and we we we're an affiliate with. Uh, uh, alive yeah um the active shooter survival was well, active threat survival training so yeah um 
with Michael Julian from um, over States. in the US. We're licensed, yes. yeah, we're licensed to his course, and we provided that to the Australian market uh, and, and globally. Anyone can jump on our platform, you can jump on his or ours. Um, but that's again, people like I said, there's been a lot of gun violence and knife violence, it's like hostile vehicle, which is a big thing. Like, how do you train? And the difference between his course to a lot of courses is mindset. Yeah, it's he trains mindset opposed to actions because it's me and you are a product of our environments and we've created our own mindset just like a lot of military people have yeah they have a different mindset to civilians even though when they leave this you know you're, you're still an army jerk or an aj as we call it here in australia yeah. even when you leave because our mindset is different and this course teaches you mindset opposed to actions correct it does yeah. teach you actions as well but that's the that's the key difference between his course and say the Alice program, which I, I or yeah, the run hide fight course that the um, government put out. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, a lot well, of government governments put it out. It's, it's actually a fundamentally they're teaching you actions opposed to mindset. It's the mindset that's different. Exactly right. And so just on that partnership, partnership, but like you know the the fact that you guys provide that alive training. So I think one of the like, I don't want to say coolest, but like one of the um, uh, s- smartest things that I've, I've seen you guys do is the partnerships that you have with all these different companies. So from TACMED Australia to Austin and then Alive as well, like you're mentioning this then. Um, what yeah. was the, de- like, what was the decision with um, that sort of relationship building between the companies? Was it uh, the, the veteran aspect of it or did you just seek out the, the best guys in the industry? Um, well, when you're you're a like you can't be an expert at everything, and and you know I I'm very good at a lot of things, but I'm only a tr- true expert in, in a few fields. Yeah. Um, and you know I'm a, I'm very novice in some some of fields. Like I, I do the OSINT, but I'm not I'm not I'm not amazing at it. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, like I've got other dudes that are really good. So why not just like, it started off originally. My friend did that platform, and I, I we built a partnership with them. I knew the TACBED team, and they might call me for advice on an operator's perspective. Yeah. Um, and usually, it's it's necessity out of what I need at the time, and then I'll build a relationship with people because me and you get along. So I've built you know a connection with you. Um, I'm not in the army. Anymore, I like to hang out with people because I like them, not yeah. because I'm forced to. So I like I, I say I don't have that no dickhead policy in, in our company, and just try to surround myself with people that are really good in their, their respective fields. Yeah, um, that have a very niche skill set, and then try to bring it uh, broader because the security market, it's a broad market. It's 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 a broad church. It has many different denominations inside of it. Um, and then these people are out in their their denomination, and I'm just trying to like cross pollinate that to other people to make the whole yeah. industry essentially better. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, tactical medicine started off with t- teaching like police, and now they're teaching, uh, you know, they start off with law enforcement. They're doing the fire brigade. They're doing all the emergency services. They're doing security. Yeah. They're now in teaching like companies how to deal with their first aid training. They do a yeah. lot of stuff on building sites, those high risk um, uh, building sites. And it's fundamentally they've 
designed new things that have uh, challenged the status quo to make things better. So, yeah, like they're, I said, they're incredible. Um, they, they've, I think, they went to the states a few times and they've won awards there during like those tech. Um, yeah, tactical medicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, shout out to Ben. He's, uh, he's and I remember amazing, um, so. that sort of. Um, mentality shift when I was in the police. So I, I had a tech med um, IFAC basically, uh, you know, on, on my, um, on my, on my vest. And I, I'd, I'd never seen anyone else with any, any IFAC or anything for, for like the longest yeah. period of time. Um, in fact, I, you know, I was in that sort of same boat, but then I went to a job where shit really hit the fan and I was like, Oh, I wish I had more yeah, tools. Um, I mean, yeah. Like you um, learn, you learn through failure, not through success. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I looked around and tech men was, I think maybe the only ones who like a lot of companies like um, LE gear and uh, Platitech sold pouches and stuff, but no one actually came with the kit and components in it and the training. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, sought out tech med and this is, uh, I don't know, like 2014, 2015, maybe. Yeah. Um, and they, they're done really well and they keep winning. Yeah, yeah they, fantastic they guys. Veteran, the veteran they won the veterans award twice now for the prime minister's veteran award twice yeah. uh, for the best small company and their best uh, veteran employee uh, Ben won it last year like you, it's it's those sort of people that it's not just for me it's not just a business relationship like yeah. I want to look at someone and go what are you doing for other people yeah so like surround yourself with people to make the world better, yeah. not make it worse. So, um, you know, I do a lot with the veteran community, uh, with the RSL and also with surf life saving. Um, I, I volunteer a lot of the time. And so I look for that in other people as well. What are you doing outside your business that are for other people that are making them as good? Because fundamentally they're good people. Yeah. Um, and I want to be around uh, good people. And you slowly especially in the business world you when you run your own company you find out who's in it just for the money and they're the dudes yeah. that fuck everyone else over yeah. i just want no part of that in my life um because there's too much headache like life's too short you only got so much time in in your life so yeah like why spend it with people you hate like why not hang out with like awesome people um <laughs> exactly. yeah and and, and 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 like michael julian like he's our connection over in the u.s um, and he's introduced me, and he's with ASIS, the Security Association. I do stuff with uh, them here. Um, I'm on the, the committee for uh, the Executive Protection Mentoring Committee, so I mentor people here in Australia. Most is on the global committee with them. Yeah. Um, it's a network building thing as well, um, but it's also I'm trying to give back to, to other people because you know I know how hard it was when I. I left like, yeah. so why not? I'm now in a position where I can help people. It might not be economically, like I can't employ everyone, yeah. um, but advice is free. Oh. You know, I'm not the sort of person that hold it all to myself. Like, because yeah. one day those dudes that hold everything to themselves and don't tell everyone because I want all the jobs, no one's going to call them because they've yeah. never helped anyone. But exactly. pe- people call me because they know I will help. And so whether it's I'm just um, sharing that contract with the prime, they'll rather work with me because I'm not trying to screw them over. So it kind of, you know, karma goes around. So if you're not not nice to Soft skills that you're, you know, we were talking about before as well, like just, just, you know, developing that empathy that, and that's all um, 
certainly down to your personality like i mean with your background like you were saying you know from from as early as your childhood with your mom uh yeah. d- developing rapport with with the people that would call her on on the emergency suicides all the way through your military career and then now in the private sector like um, well it's emotional intelligence yeah and obviously as i've got older like I, <laughs> I look back now my army time i was like man, I, was, I was young back then yeah um i'm a much wiser now uh, five years after leaving the military, then my whole lived experience in, yeah. in the military, uh, and I wouldn't give that up for anything. But it's just like it's your, you know, it's emotional intelligence, and it's how you talk and interact with people. Yeah, uh, that sets you apart from, from from other people. Now, don't like don't get me wrong. I run a business as well, so when I have these conversations, there is the economics behind it, and I I build workable relationships and partnerships with other companies. One to either, and I might not even generate. Uh, that much uh, trade in the forefront, but it could down the, down the track. So yeah. I have a relation. I have a relationship with uh, TACMED and um, we sell some of their products. But I needed to build products for myself for my capability. So now I have that purpose-built medical bag, which yeah. I, I'm sure you saw uh, that I roll in my cars. Like people can ring me because I've already designed and built that for myself yeah. with the help of TACMED. It's the necessity part, and then I work out a relationship. And I'm like, hey, well, we might we'll make money out of this at the same time, yeah. and maybe I can sell that product to him. Other, maybe I can't. Maybe it's a market he's not exposed to that he can get traction in. Yeah, and I'm just the facility that that happens. So, like, yeah, you know, if there's courses out there that people want to put on put online, like, sure. Like, yeah, well, I was going to say, um, uh, with yeah. the description of this podcast, I'll add in. Um, I think I still have an affiliate link with you guys, so I'll, I'll add that in. Yeah. Um, and you know, anyone that wants to do some, some really good quality training, um, hit up empire Institute. The, the other thing as well is that I think in the online modules, you also have a few sort of PDFs that people can download. Um, yeah. uh, remember in, in the heat module, um, we were discussing before, uh, about like sort of, I suppose like remaining, you know, when you're in, in that soft SF community, uh, tip of the spear sort of stuff, you, you're, um, constantly updating yourselves with your TTPs, remaining sharp, uh, you know, highly vigilant. How do you do that in the private sector now that, you know, you don't have maybe the resources that you, you had the logistics and all that sort of stuff. Um, what's, and what's... It's, and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard here in Australia too. So yeah. Um, uh, we don't have access to, we're not a fire, firearms country. So yeah. you don't have access to um, as much firearms training and, the firearms training that's here in Australia is 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 terrible, and they actually teach you worse. Like I'm not, I haven't I haven't shot for a couple of years now, but I'm not going to go to the range and degrade my skills <laughs> doing that one bad practice that you're yeah. showing me. I fundamentally won't do it because, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm not running it at well the same level as was I uh, on Tag East, like doing counterterrorism. Yeah, I may only be running at seventy five percent, but my seventy five percent is probably better than a lot of people's. Yeah. So um, I do train where I can. So I do a lot of my medical training, and uh, uh, I'm doing something every week. I do something. I pull the gear out, look through it, uh, practice. I'm teaching people, so that's inherent. When you teach someone, you reinforce your 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 learning. Um, I read a lot. Uh, a lot of self education. Uh, so I don't read a lot. That's a lie. Everyone that knows me knows I don't read. Uh, I listen to a lot of 
audiobooks. Uh, audiobooks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I do read little small articles and that. I'm not a book person, like big book person. Uh, podcasts, everything. Yeah. Uh, interested from other, don't just stick in that one field of, of subjects that you know, like branch out into other stuff. Uh, yeah. Keep it interesting. So open mind, you know. Mm. Yeah, open your mind a bit, and you'll find that you like something. Some things I'll listen to, and I just do not like them. But I'll listen to them just because I, I want to understand a broad concept of, of of that. Like everything's going to blockchain and 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 cryptocurrencies. Crypto, I yeah. don't understand it. But the blockchain, the technology behind that. Like I, I learn a little bit of stuff on that just so I understood the underlying. One, I can have a conversation with someone. So when I, you're with an executive and they start talking about something, I can hold my own uh, at a very basic level. With uh, We do our own driver training. Um, so just the other day, we were actually down in the capital and doing some driver training down there uh, during the rain. And just everything's an opportunity to learn. Yeah. So I think every time we do a job, what we're really good at is doing an after action review after that job. And I'll actually call guys after the job and like, hey, what worked well as an operator on that job? Yeah. Was my leadership style effective? Um, is there anything oh, I could have done better? Yeah. And so like, I'm looking for that feedback from my guys and that will, you know, I said it, like that feeds back into your ecosystem of training. Yeah? Yeah. And I'll just update and remember that for next time. So like when we're on the job, you know, and dudes will have, you know, there's a lot of good information out there and dudes have good ideas, so listen to them. Yeah, you know, a, a guy might give you an idea. You might think it's terrible. Well, that's the time to teach that guy why you think it's not and you can have a conversation on that point and go through a little training cycle. But like, you may be in a static position. Where do you stand in that static position? Why would you stand there opposed to yeah. the other side of the room? Talk that out. That's, that's training. Yeah, like it's not just the the hard skills. Yeah, get on the mat and have a wrestle around. And um, unfortunately, my stepson is now seventeen and six foot four, so um, <laughs> things, things get a bit interesting. And I'm like, I'm five nine. <laughs> um, he's hitting the gym now. He's a, he's a bit of a weapon. Um, a, a true unit. <laughs> yeah. So like, everything's an opportunity, and and the information's out there. Like. Today's online environment, we have access to more information than any other generation ever yeah. before. So if you can't, and a lot of it was classified, now it's like declassified techniques. You can go to the US uh, and do go to a shooting school and be taught by SF dudes, which hopefully I, like when the board, we can actually sab- yeah. uh, safely travel again, I'll, I'll get over to the US and I'll go do a couple of hard skill courses yeah. Uh, just to polish up the, the, the skills a bit. But, you know, people like, oh, driving. But you can practice your driving anywhere um, in a safe manner. Yeah, you can't do the J-turns and, and that, like, in everyday public. But there's a lot of tech, little techniques, like where you position your car in traffic, how far away yeah. um, from the other car should you be. Like, so if you're thinking about that while you're just driving around the streets, like that's mindset, um, and then you're going to apply that in real time when it comes because it becomes second nature to you, exactly. uh, and you've reinforced that skill set over and over again. You're just going to inherently do that, or you're going to be aware when the environment changes and you have a different input 
uh, to that situation. You're like, wait a second. If I do this now, if I do B instead of A because I've got uh, input of X, X, you're like, okay, I'm not going to park as close to that car so I can get the car out, for an example. Um, You know, when you're driving behind your mates down the freeway, maybe you without breaking any laws to practice a few con- <laughs> convoy driving. But like, yeah. that's something people don't practice that often. No, exactly. Yeah. Hard, like, you're going on a camping trip somewhere and you get your cars or you just go and meet someone somewhere. You, you practice that driving high speed. Yeah. Um, you know, there's little things that you can do through your day. Exactly. Um, yeah. that, that will count up. And it's those 1% of them. That's probably what's going to fail in the job. Yeah. It's like, if it, you know, comes to, you know, flash the bang and you, you're like, dude, it's going kinetic. Yeah. Like, you've missed that out is what on it so is. many. Yeah. Yeah. You've missed out on so many opportunities. But that's not like the rarity of that happening. It's the car accident. Car yeah. accident, you're more likely to have a car accident than yeah. anything else. Like, that's why it's it's economical and feasible to have a paid professional driver if you're an executive. There's a cost. There's the cost benefit for that is way better and you're de-risking just by having a local driver that drives those conditions every day exactly you shouldn't you know get that local driver and then you you provide support and provide that that threat and risk de-escalation um and you have the local driver driving and that's pretty common practice in the executive protection world or cp world around the world yeah like having that sort of um individual driving would be you know like they've got their baseline knowledge and that like in terms of situational awareness you know exactly what's normal and and as soon as something is is off you know off the scale a little bit they're able to pick up on that much quicker than you know having somebody else fly in and driving or or whatever it may be it's like you mentioned before I was gonna say you they understand the atmospherics of the room. Exactly. It's like if you went to a pub, yeah, the guy that knows the pub the best is the security guard that works that pub. Yeah. So like when I bring a team in and I have to go to that pub, make friends with that. That's his yeah. that's his domain, that's yeah. his castle. Don't be a jerk like hey, um yeah. EP team is like, hey man, I need you to help me. So like we're all safe here. That guy might give you connections for the next job. He might end up on your team. I've actually hired dudes <laughs> from that because they're like, hey, man, I've got an exit point over here for you because they're thinking. Yeah. You know, they're using a lateral. Not every, they're not, not everyone can work EP every day and make a, a life on it. A lot of it is like, hey, it's a fun couple of days every month or, or whatever around the world unless yeah. you're on a de- uh, permanent detail. But especially in Australia, there's not many details around there. Yeah. Um, dudes have their bread and butter, whether it's residential protection or they, they might work at a hotel as a security manager at a hotel. So it's like, you know, pretty quickly when you walk into a room, a hotel, and you get a security manager, it's like, hey, mate, access point here. This is my personal phone. These are the exit points. This is what I think you should, the way you should move, but happy to, you do whatever you want. I'm just giving you the information. You're like, hey, man, you're actually, yeah, pretty you're actually on. pretty switch, switch yeah. on, dude. I might take that dude out of his own environment and go, hey, come work with me for a day. See how it operates like I've hired dudes like that. So yeah, that's awesome. Know. Yeah. Um with uh hopefully now, you know, we're we're coming what two years into this amazing COVID sort of uh, world that we're living in now. Um as as things start to return, hopefully the UFC is coming back and stuff. Like what's what's the uh plan for Empire into twenty twenty two? Uh, so we do a lot of uh, security risk 
uh, and resilience consulting, crisis management sort of stuff. So that that yeah. part of the business has really, really picked up in the last 12 months. Um, there's a lot of companies that are trying to build resilience across the whole spectrum of their company, yeah. but also in the security function. Um, so we consult uh, with a pretty major company in Australia at the moment. Um, I won't tell you which industry because I'll give it away. Um, you know, we work with banks, with telcos, um, some other ASX listed companies, and there's some privately held companies as well. Yeah. So like the growing sector net at the moment is the defence and space industries. Um, we're just in partnership to buy into a uh, cybersecurity company so we can have a holistic approach uh, for companies that want to work with defence. Right. So we'll, we'll, uh, we've got business consultants um, partnership to help your company grow and uh, fund into the defence and space uh, industry. We can do the uh, consulting for all your compliance for government in the security space. Yeah. Uh, we can do normal security consulting for that company. Uh, we can also do the cyber security company. So I've built an ecosystem of, of teams and we're just the, the coordinating function yeah. uh, of that team. Some are internal, uh, some are experts in their field that we partnership only with them yeah. because they're the best. Other capabilities are internal to us. Uh, so that, that space is picking up. Uh, we're seeing a lot of all the bands and, and music industry and events is, Come back. is lifting. Yeah. And I think you'll see a lot more specialist teams at, um, at like music venues and that sort of stuff after you've seen uh, what happened in the US. Uh, the flavor of the month is, hey, we just can't hire a thousand guards yeah. and expect them all to do every job there. You need to hire specialist teams to do specialist jobs. Now, you might, the venue might hire a specialist team just to do the executive protection yeah. for that event. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's picking up or just like you'd have like those teams that go into the mosh, into the crowded areas that pull out people that are injured and that sort of stuff. That's a very niche special skill. You can't just give that to any. Yeah. No, there's a lot, a lot of training involved in that. Yeah. I, I think yeah, I, I, that... I was going to say, it's just picking up all over the board and, you know, all the global uh, events are going to come back. So like, I think the EP game in Australia is going to be a bit crazy because um, yeah. it's getting crazier all over the world. There's just a lack of good people um out there yeah i, I was gonna say um on the executive side um i was tuned into a, a webinar i can't remember who hosted it um it was, it was a big security company um but they were saying they were discussing it, it was um i think the cso of like coca-cola um uh a few other ma major companies but they were discussing certain implications from covid that no one really um had in their contingency in their playbooks or their contingency plans and um, one of it was the mass scale of employees being able to work from home. Um, and the yeah. fact that like you have these computers, uh, you know, basically connected to the main servers and all that sort of stuff. Traditionally where they're in the office kind of secured, uh, you know, there's protocols that you can follow in the business, but now they're in somebody's living room. And so the, you know, the, the threat of uh, corporate espionage, whatever it may be, um, it's yeah, just, it's just, just it's growing. Grown. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's cool that you guys are getting on board with the well, that cyber uh, security side of side of the um. The yeah, house. and that that will give like we're we're a small manpower company in, in in the scale of things. We're not a big shop. Um, you know, we hire people when we need them. Yeah. To get the scale 
like other companies, you need to find a product that can scale efficiently and and IT-based products can scale efficiently. So, and you want to be that person that they call you for those problems that just don't make sense. Yeah. Like that are unusual. I don't want to do the boring stuff because I will get bored. Yeah. Um, I want to do the like, hey, put my thinking cap on. Let's come up with a workable solution with the the skills and and resources that we have. Yeah. Um, and the big like a lot of stuff now is is you know, finding that information, someone's information's leaked somehow. How do you go back online and we got some go back to pretty creative connections? They can find information for us, just like, hey, maybe you should think about this. Um, a lot of funnily enough, a lot of it's like divorce proceedings, like people like rich people breaking up is that that throws a whole nother mix in it because there's hatred in there. Like most yeah. violent crimes, there's not hatred, but um, you know something about a man and a wife splitting up. There's like pure hatred in that say, relationship. That, like most violent crimes, like a lot of it's you know opportunistic, obviously. But with with yeah. divorces, it's that emotional that you can have time to plan and and you know all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, you know that, and people are just doing it's a it's a lot easier now to have cyber crime done on you than it was three years ago yeah like yeah. like you can you can essentially buy malware off the shelf ready to go to do an attack on someone so like that's how easy it is for your adversaries to to influence your operating environment yeah. like organized crime can just buy that now like people are just creating these products you can buy it and use it yeah. um so like i think in australia something like cyber crime's gone up like Six thousand percent in like the last twelve months or something. It's just like I don't know whether that's like the mechanism of how they record the crimes now, yeah. and more people are reporting them, yeah. or it's COVID, or it's a mix of both. But it's just like yeah. insane amount of information um, is done on the digital world. But how does that? You know, your physical world has to overflow with your digital world. It doesn't stand in isolation. So data centers, like how are people pretend? You know protecting data centers and, and and the requirements to protect the data center opposed to or you just even your home like yeah. how are you protecting your you know you can find buy physical hardware that protects um your wi-fi router now it's you like these are the things you need to start looking into just yeah. you know i have um i have active monitoring on my phone and, and my and my computer like not just any virus it's like if the ai an antivirus can't um, detect that threat or it's an unknown threat, it will flag it to an operator. So you're using yeah. artificial intelligence to sift through all the known threats. So when that one comes through that's unknown, an operator, because we're short on resources, like yeah. human power, with so many attacks, that one operator then can isolate that threat and deal with, instead of getting flagged yeah. with all these false positives like oh, I don't need to worry about them just flag the one so yeah. that active monitoring on the endpoint user that's and people don't write like, not many people write executive protection programs they just like oh I need this like we here in Australia and there's only a few people around the world that do it is actually articulate in a formal document and go through a formal procedure of articulating the threats vulnerabilities and risks to a, per, a person or a group of people yeah. um, 
and writing them down and then mitigating those risks with controls. So just like you go through a work health safety sort of practice, it's the same thing, but you're implying the, the security context over that. And we go through and and one of the big things now is cybercrime. So yeah. what, what are your controls in place to prevent that? Now, some of them are going to be physical control measures to, you know, security in depth and isolate those critical areas. But then other, it's going to be software on the endpoint user. Because yeah. like, everyone's got their phone I can tap into that phone and I don't understand the detail behind a lot of the cyber stuff but I understand that how it interacts with the physical world exactly so you know like you don't need to be a a cyber expert to provide good advice um, to your clients you know find a good cyber person and team up with them and just like hey I'm going to sell you products it's one of the things we do you know, it just be, like people started asking about that because it's cybersecurity and physical security. Well, it's security. It's in your your domain. It's not. It's just quite a broad industry, but you need to understand. Oh, I need a person that I can I can yeah. call and partner with to provide those advices. Um, especially if you're like a politically exposed person, and, and by that I mean someone that's famous, someone that's um, runs a company that's always on the media, yeah. like in the media. You know, public, there's a lot of people that run public companies. Public profile. No, public profiles. Like they're the people, you know, um, there's people on the internet now that are like these social influencers. Mm. Like, hey, I'm rich, I'm famous. And I know a lot of that is fake, but they're now becoming above the detection threshold and they're the people that are going to get targeted initially on the cyber crime yeah. but then it could go into other physical crimes so you know and that's where the easy money is now i think i think afp is getting more worried about cyber crime than they are about drugs because more money is being taken through through cyber events yeah. Yeah. but a lot of them it, it's a physical response that you have you know it's, it's a few little things that you can do on your home to stop people getting access to those critical bits of infrastructure yeah exactly exactly and and it's yeah i mean you i like um one thing i like about you guys as well it's like you're just saying that you know you're not an expert in it uh in the cyber side of the house but you team up with people who are you know the best in the business um and i think setting that expectation is so important with your with your clients as well to to go hey look i might not know all the answers but i'll find them for you and i'll you know get them for you um having that 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 network and so like the guy that we teamed up with and doing the cyber stuff like he 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 was heavily in defense writing defense's policy for cyber protection for defense like yeah you know find some serious people make connections um get out there i mean there's a lot of people that say they're experts in the cyber world and i've got bullshit on that so find the right people do your right due diligence uh yeah and find out the products that that work and don't work and the margins are probably exponential like triple what they are in the physical world because yeah. no one understands it yeah so you know you can really work down and find a good relationship and where you can both make money yeah. um selling products to other people so don't don't people i think you gotta understand your understand the business that you're in and the environment that you're in and then look for inroads in expanding that that organization that you're working with so yeah. Uh, with other business opportunities, know your limitations where you can, you know, I don't claim I can do everything uh, and I'm happy to say I can't do something and yeah. people will respect that more than the person who goes, oh, I'll solve that and then provide exactly. a, 
a bad product. A bad, yeah, the shoe product, me. yeah. Yeah, I'd rather go, no, I can't do that. I can make a few phone calls for you um, and I can put you in touch with someone that has been recommended through my network of people. Yeah. Uh, but if I can't, I can't back the product. I'm going to give you advice only. I'm not going to like sell it through my thing, but that's just me. Like that's, yeah. that's a risk to my, my, my business reputation and my reputation as a person. With um, we were talking about, you know, that relationship building. Um, I know as a company, you guys are very passionate about uh, being a veteran owned business, um, you know, a, a sovereign business as well. Uh, what's, if you could give advice to, you know, potentially somebody about to leave the military or police, whatever it may be, starting up a business, uh, any any sort of good advice for uh, a veteran looking to start up a company or you know a veteran-owned business that's already started up? Find something that you enjoy doing because you're probably going to be doing it for a long time <laughs> and, and and do your research. So, like, and don't, like, don't jump into something just because other people are doing it. And just like, oh, that's all I know. I'll just jump into that. Like, yeah. you know, maybe go do something different. Um, I've got a friend, he, you know, he was working with us on and off. He went and did his MBA. Now he's got a hiking st- store and he sells hiking products, right. uh, like camping, camping products and doing quite, quite well. Uh, just got a new, like new, new office space and he's got deliveries going out, out, out the door. And again, he just, that's what he wanted to do. He enjoys that space. Yeah. His passion Otherwise, you're just going to be a slave to the man and go do a job that you hate. Like, you probably left the army because you you hated it at that point. Like, go do something that you enjoy that makes you happy. Yeah. Because, like, again, we're only here for so so long. So, you, if you're not if you're not happy at work, like it's half your day. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. Half sleep. You, you're going to be sleeping. Is you're going to have a very boring life. And and don't think you get. You can do it just by yourself. Find the right people to to work with and start small and do your research. Yeah. Um, you know, there's and there's a thousand opportunities out there in a thousand different fields. Um, and maybe look what's happening five years from now, ten years to now. If you want the good opportunities, you know, me and Josh started this company five years ago, knowing that now is the time when things are needing it. So we had built it for five years before we've started to see traction. Yeah. It's a, we're playing a, a long game. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of good emerging blockchain, for example. There's a lot of stuff happening in blockchain technology um, with compliance and that sort of stuff. So yeah. look at those industries that are growing, not, hey, that's easy money there. It's probably easy money because the industry is drinking and no one wants to do that job anymore. Yeah, exactly. One day that job's going to end. So... Have, have, yeah, have, just, a, have a longer outlook, enjoy what you do, have passion what you do. And the thing is, it's like that old saying, like, you know, you enjoy what you do. You never work a day in your life, really. Like it's having that, exactly. that enjoyment factor. Um, yeah. I might wrap it up soon. This is, it's a, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, the, <laughs> you have to cut this down. There's a lot of things in there. Nah, I'm just going to keep it raw. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to end off with, um, you know, you, uh, New South Wales um, Surf Lifesaver. So you've been obviously quite passionate about it um, ever since you were a kid, really. Um, and now, you, are, are you doing it full time or is it a volunteer basis? Uh, How no. does it work? Uh, yeah. uh, I probably do it more than my wife likes me to do it. So <laughs> I, I, I started off as a, as a nipper. Uh, yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. 
probably four, 10 years old. And then I didn't touch it there for a while. And then when I was in the army, actually, when I went to the uh, special forces training center, like we, we realized we really weren't training people to provide a risk, uh, like a response capability for rescue. Um, for one of our training serials. Right. Uh, we had no formal qualifications and that sort of stuff. So surf life saving obviously been around 100 years. Yeah. Bread and butter. Yeah. They're the standard, they're the standard for water rescues. So um we just jumped in and I, I did that for 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 the army. I did it and then I was like, I just started volunteering and then the environment they got me to teach because I had a teaching background. I was teaching all the time. And then uh, the bushfires happened a couple of years ago and they had um, they started sending surf life savings to help out uh, the other emergency services in the yeah. bushfires. So, and honestly, fighting, fighting fires, they were doing rear echelon tasks, like they were manning the operation centers, yeah. uh, the radios. Uh, we have liaison officers to to organize. And then uh, 12 months ago, I got asked to, to come on as a as a duty officer, uh, volunteer duty officer for the eastern suburbs, which is where I live. Um yeah, but like we're, I responded to one of the floods with our uh, state emergency service, which is another volunteer organization yeah. uh, for flood and storm, um, which every state has. Um, and like we're in the water doing rescues. Well, it wasn't personally, my men were and women were in the water doing rescues right alongside these other rescue operators. And they're like, my God, you are so good at this and you've never done it before. <laughs> driving a boat boat in the surf is just as hard as driving a boat in a flooded river. Yeah. Um, so, and then I ended up um, at a massive control center, like day one, never done this job before in my life and uh, providing like uh, as a uh, liaison officer. Um, and a few major things happened and I helped everyone sort of me out and then I had to do it, help them. Work our safety guy out doing an investigation afterwards because it was a capsize of one of the big marine rescue boats. And, um, you know, we, in the end, we saved people's lives. Yeah. Uh, the guys on the ground did. And I just coordinated from afar. But that was my expertise. Um, I was in that position. I got asked to do that job. I volunteered to go out to that position. Yeah. And because I've wor- worked in a joint headquarters before, yeah. a joint headquarters is a joint multi agency. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's built around the same concepts. Yeah. Um, so I was able to influence uh, things and help out. And I actually really enjoy it. And, you know, our main job is welfare for the people on the ground. Uh, and we respond to emergencies uh, locally when the beaches are open. Yeah. Um, whether it's a drowning or whatever, we'll come and coordinate uh, the helicopters, the boats, liaise with the police and, and ambulance gotcha. services while our people on the ground do the hands-on work so you're in command you're looking after people and then I have to do all the welfare for all those people as well yeah nice. checking up on them then so it's just a way i can give back to the community and and i suppose people join the army to to volunteer in some way and it's just a way i can continue to do that and actually operating at that level uh in an emergency like that is good for my executive protection it's a good way to train for yeah. free because my decision making yeah. is being used every day exactly uh, yeah. whether it's search and rescue or, or a drowning like I am coordinating I'm facilitating the safe evacuation of those people uh, whether back from the hospital yeah no one's shooting at me but it's that's that decision making that you're getting trained on constantly yeah. and you're just you're working your mind and um, it keeps me sharp so and, uh, I, 
I thrive in the in the chaos. Um, it I probably of, promotes that. I, sort of... I, yeah, I like to live in a bit of chaos in my life. Yeah, so if I get too, <laughs> can't get too comfortable. Like, I can't get to go into it. There's chaos going around. I'm actually a much calmer person. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like everyone's freaking out. I'm kind of, yeah. this is normal for me. It's like, it feels natural. So, yeah, um, it, yeah but it just keeps you sharp. It, it, it's, it, it sounds like as well, like it maybe promotes that sense of like uh, belongingness as well. Like, you know, you're, you're in that sort of group with the, you've got that, that mission in, in mind and, um yeah, yeah you're thriving in the chaos like you were saying bands you together as a team and all that sort of stuff so it's yeah sounds, sounds pretty and, funny and, and that's probably a, a good thing is um the when i left the army that's kind of when I, I i joined it because i needed a sense of purpose a sense of community yeah you need financial stability it didn't give me financial stability um and you need physical fitness so if you got like those four things and i was getting three of those Four from this one organization, yeah, sense of purpose, a sense of community, uh, strong personal connections, and and physical fitness like yeah, it ticked a lot of boxes. Hey, that's good for my mental health, yeah. Um, jump in there and, and do a lot of things. So, I, I, I did it initially for a selfish reason to look after myself, yeah, but it gave me an outlet to help other people, um, which is a selfish way of thinking about things, but. Um, I think that's why it makes Australia really different to a lot of countries is we have a strong volunteer base, whether it's yeah. helping with community sport, you know, running the canteen at schools yeah. um, for free. Like we, there's many people volunteer in their own way to help others. Yeah. And I, I think that's why uh, Australia is different to a lot of countries is that volunteer mentality that we have yeah. Um, and like I said, like help other people like where you can because one day you're going to need help. Exactly. You know? right. So yeah. if you've helped out a lot of people over your time, like when you're having a tough tough day, people are going to come help you. So, and uh, I've seen that. So you know, yeah. again, that's a it's a selfish thing. I'm just preparing myself for when I need help, but I get to help people along the way, which makes me feel good. So yeah, exactly right. I think uh, there's a famous Muhammad Ali quote. It's like the, um, uh, you know, community service. I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like something like community service is, is the rent that you pay while you're on earth or something like that. You know, it's, it's it, there is that sort of importance um, in, in, yeah, you know, some sort of service to your, to your fellow man. Um, yeah. And, and it's in any sort of environment you can do it. Like police and uh, nurses, they, you know, they're helping people. That, yeah. Helping someone else like typically makes you feel better about yourself. So like, yeah, why not not do it? Everyone wants to feel good, so that's an easy way to do it. <laughs> exactly right. All right, man. Um, look, thank you. You know, obviously for your uh, service in the military, your service uh, in in private life, uh, in the lifesavers, in in in, in work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to know amazing people like yourself. Um, yeah, thanks again for being on the podcast, and um, I can't wait for, uh, for people to tune in. I think ne- next yeah. one I might um, hit up Josh, and then we'll do one with Josh, and then maybe one with with the three of us. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah, more than happy we'll to catch up. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the time. It was good chatting to you again, man. Have a merry Christmas. Yeah, you too. Happy New Year as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right, cheers, man. Bye. See ya. Bye. 